I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Welcome to the Anything Goes Podcast, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with our One Good Scare Marathon, our monthly chronological exploration of the Halloween franchise. And we are reaching the end of September, and like we promised on the last episode, that we'll be reviewing Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And like every Halloween podcast, I have the same co-host, Mr. Mike Wilson. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Did you get it? Did you get it this time? Third time's the charm? Yeah. Little technical difficulties we're having here, but yeah. third time we're good. Uh, mm. I'm doing well. No ailments to speak of that I know of yet. Well, as of yet, if I don't know it, then it's not happening. So that's a good thing. Oh well, yeah, I mean, if it doesn't, if it's if I'm not aware of it, it's not there. Yep. No ailments. I mean, we did watch two cuts of Halloween too just now. So we may be so, dying a little forward. We just don't know it yet. Uh, no, 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 no. In all seriousness, this is not going to be the. Uh, the, the total bashing, brutal, you know, dissecting that you may think it is. This movie doesn't have the greatest reputation. In fact, there are many that claim it ruined the Halloween series, which mm-hmm. is highly fucking debatable, and we're going to debate that right now. Yes. Um, but it does have quite the stigma over it. It is the last Halloween movie to be made up until next month's uh, Halloween 2018. Yeah, it was... And it's been nine years... Yeah, it was, I mean, it was so good, it, it stopped the franchise from making a movie for nine years. Well, I mean, there were there have been many difficulties. Yes, which, which we'll get all, into. Yeah, which we'll get into. But, like I said, we're talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, so let's jump into that right now. <laughs> Okay, so the first Rob Zombie Halloween in 2007 came out. It was a massive success, and then it was... It was a massive financial success, yet very divided in opinion. Yes, because there's some people saying it's too reliant on the remake, like the third, like the third, second half of the movie is too reliant on uh, John Carpenter's original, like it, like being a beef-with-beat remake. Which and I actually think is better, the yeah. second half. And then there's some people say, like, oh, no, it was too different as a remake. And also the silly Rob Zombie bullshit. And really the explaining and removing of the mystique of Michael Myers. Precisely. And so it was such a financial success that a sequel was in the works, but it was... 
I'm clear if Zombie was going to come back for it, though. Yeah, it was originally announced in 2008 at the, uh, I don't know, originally, but in 2008, the 30 Years of Terror convention, uh, Malika Khan did confirm that there was a sequel in the works. Uh, originally, Rob Zombie had said he didn't want to come back. He was done. He just wanted to make one. So they had originally signed on, well, that were in, nego- in negotiations with French filmmakers Julian Maury and Alexandra Bustillo. Um, that ended up not happening. Instead, right. Rob Zombie did did come back to write and direct. Um, he claimed that after the, the the making of the first one was exhausting. And, and, I mean, I understand, you know, if you watch the four-hour documentary on the DVD or Blu-ray set, you can really see what went into it. There was a lot done. It was his biggest project to date, so I can feel how he'd have a little bit of burnout after that. Uh, but, you know, he took some time away. Decided to come back. Right, because like he had done, yeah, he did this, and then he put out an album, I think it was... Educated Assholes, or whatever. That, was or was that one? after Devil's Rejects? I think, it was, I think it was 2006. Okay, that was after Devil's Rejects then. Right, and so I forget... Um, I remember that bringing me as much joy as a bad doctor prognosis. Right, I, I may be mistaken, but like I remember because I saw him on the tour he did after Halloween, because he was support like he was... Because my first concert was actually at Madison Square Garden. It was in this moment, opened up, then it was Zombie, and then it was Ozzy Osbourne. Oh. And it was on the No More, uh, it was on the Black Rain tour. Okay. And so, yeah, that was in 2007. So I think it was, it was, because I think it was around December. So, so yeah. we, we've both seen Rob Zombie open up for Ozzy. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a weird way uh, of connecting right there. And so, like, in his kind of, his idea or his, like, kind of routine, I would say, that he's even stated is like he'll make a movie and then he'll make an album go on tour and then he'll write the movie his next movie while he's on tour and when he's done and then he'll make a movie when he's not touring and then that, that like it all it all worked out basically exactly. I mean, producers did want Rob Zombie to return because you know they they uh, they weren't really feeling anyone else's ideas and Rob Zombie did earn the trust of of the Akkads uh, Malik Akkad who's who's been in charge of the Halloween series, you know, taken over since his father's passing. Right. And Rob Zombie did decide to come back ultimately because I think he, he felt like he didn't want anyone, if he had, if there's going to be a part two, he'd rather be involved in it. Yes. You know, like if there, if there has to be a number two, at least let him come back and at least let it be his thing. Yeah, I, I imagine his, the negotiation process was like they, like they called him into Dimension's office and they gave him, like you've said before, a big pile of money with a cartoon, a dollar sign on it. A, a, a big burlap sack with a dollar sign on the side of it. And just I think that's how, I, because, because he had stated numerous times before him making his version of Halloween is like remaking a, a classic is a terrible idea. They should just remake a bad movie and make it better. Mm-hmm. And then he would say, like, and then he was said on numerous occasions that he would not do a sequel. And then, so I assume it was just like money talks and, Oh, oh you're fucking kidding me. Of course he's an entrepreneur. It's not, it's not past him to, he's a businessman. It's not past him to want, you know, fucking money. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is funny. <laughs> you said he's an entrepreneur. I was going to say, no, he's a vegan. It's okay. Oh, okay. But is he? Yeah, he is. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Bizarre. Yeah, you saw like a documentary of um, like chicken slaughterhouses when he was in high school, and like he became like a vegetarian from there. Then he became a vegan later in life. But um, I just find it bizarre, just with all his like zombie imagery of flesh eating monsters and yeah. all these things, and how many animals are slaughtered. And they, they, I mean, granted, the monster in this movie does eat meat, mm-hmm. and, and oh, that, that explains Annie and Laurie in this movie. Yeah, huh? 
But uh, don't worry, folks. One-dimensional, stereotypical cardboard cutout characters do return. Also, oh yeah, don't worry. The, and the, so, the writing is as spot on as it's ever been. But let's go into the pre-production of how this came about and like the changes that happened from this from his first movie to here. Well, Malakakad did give him permission to to you know go all out, do his own vision, and not really retain any Carpenter esque you know feeling of it. Yeah, you, like it didn't feel like you had to be adherent to the second Halloween movie in the franchise. And, you know, there there, are, there is at least the opening set piece is like the closest thing you get to the original Halloween two because it's set in a hospital. Ironically, though, uh, Rob Zombie has stated that was not intentional. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I I mean, it makes sense why she would end up in a hospital and Michael would find her there. I mean, it could just. I mean, like we we don't know if he's actually even seen Halloween two. Like a, like a, no, he has. He said it sucks. But yeah, like, okay. as, as they as they said on The Simpsons, are you, sir? Are you calling Mr. Zombie a liar? Well, we do have this footage of him with his pants on fire. <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen him actually have a pyrotechnic uh, mishap on stage or anything like that. No, like, he's not great white. No, <laughs> or James Hetfield. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I remember that happened when he was. I think it was in Canada when that happened. Um, I think yeah, was, when they opened for Guns N' Roses, and Roses, there was a big R- riot because Axl Rose is a douchebag. Yeah, and so then Metallica went on to save the day, and that happened. Well, no, 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 no. That, oh, ha- for, that happened for afterwards. Oh, Guns N' Roses okay. were, were the headliner. Oh, okay. But anyway, Halloween, because this is anything goes. Yes. Now, th- there has been the ongoing. I don't know if it's rumor. That Rob Zombie wanted. Sorry. Oh God. That Rob Zombie wanted to do because he was given this creative freedom. He originally set out to do a Meyerless sequel where Michael Myers really was dead, similar to what John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted to do for Halloween Four, where he was dead but the memory of him still lived on through Laurie, Mm -hmm. and as she got worse and worse, she sort of resurrected him through herself. And from what I have heard. This the, the I don't know if it was the Weinstein's the Akkads whoever someone could put the kibosh on this and said no Michael Myers has to be in it and because I see even like like Friday Thirteenth Part Five where Jason is not in it and it could be like you could still have murders in his version of this Halloween but it'd be like a whodunit at this point well I think it's more the idea that like we tried a sequel without Michael Myers in it and everyone got pissed off even though thirty years later they said oh yeah it's not that bad so right, let's not mean, do that again. And if you listen to the director's commentary, I've listened to it before. If you listen to the director's commentary and compare it from Halloween One, he kind of just feels like he just doesn't fucking give a damn. Oh no, he he, he it, it is obligatory. That's how he feels like on my commentary track. He yeah, just, it feels like 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 all right, we'll let you out in two hours. So sit down and talk. And when we watched the deleted scenes earlier, there's a deleted scenes on the Blu-ray and DVD. We could have watched that with his commentary. We could have. I thought that was there was a no. I think it was was it or was it just a movie commentary? I don't know. Too sure. But anywho, in half an hour of deleted scenes, and I don't even think this is all the deleted scenes that made it there, and we'll we'll get into that. In half an hour of deleted scenes, there was maybe what six and a half that that we found worthy. There was worthy of it, so there was something that would be like six and a half minutes. But I think out of that six and a half, there was maybe two or three that we felt should have been there. Oh yeah, ones that could have. Yeah. And uh, let me tell you, folks, I-, I work in a freaking school. I work for a school district. I have seen what it's like to jack off with other people's money. 
This is the cin- the greatest like cinematic equivalent of, of jacking off with people's money. His del- the shit he put on fi- precious film stock. And the funny thing is, you say that is because when we were watching, because we watched both versions of the movie, and we let the credits roll the theatrical cut because we watched the director's cut first. So the theatrical cut is rolling on TV while we're getting set up to do this recording. And at the very end of like the bottom of the credits, it says like Fujifilm. Fujifilm is no longer a business. It's only Kodak nowadays. And so. Any Fujifilm nowadays is considered like a collector's item. Precious Fujifilm. Yeah. Like literally wasted here. He has scenes with his ca- with these characters where, I mean, I, I believe I pointed this out in the Hollywood One podcast, where when he's, when he's showing just, you know, obligatory dialogue of characters, you know, I guess just to establish these characters, say, okay, like, in, like I'll give, for example, in the first one, when we first meet Laurie and her family. We get the typical, you know, breakfast at the Strode house. Every, you know, everyone's getting ready for work and school and whatnot. Father's reading the paper, and he starts going on about Nichols Hardware going out of business and the, the faceless corporate people putting the small business out. Like, he injects, like, his personal... Politics. Politics, feelings into his movies and his dialogue, and it comes off so incredibly just, just, just wooden. Ham-fisted. Ham-fisted, childlike. Goofy. Now that okay, that was just a quick li- you know line of dialogue in a in a scene that I, I feel you needed for that movie establishing right. okay we're we're meeting we're meeting our female protagonist and her family for the first time and the silly dialogue in it okay he has entire scenes with characters where they're arguing something usually a, t- a topic of his personal interest politics yada 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 and it serves absolutely no point context or anything to this story or even these fucking characters i mean like you think of it this way like there's one one of my favorite books of screenwriting calls it's called your screenplay sucks 100 ways to make it better and so it goes down 100 bullet points to make your screenplay stronger and they say a scene has to do two things every every great scene does two things it moves the plot forward and reveals character information and the things that like will be cut in the editing room by the studio would be like things that are like a joke um, and the, and the second, the most important thing is probably the character information. If, it does, if it's if it's just like character like stuff is like expressing their personality and that doesn't move the plot forward, it's shit that usually goes first. And it's definitely apparent here because there's so many scenes of just like people giving more context to who they are, but they don't play into the overall story whatsoever. It's all over the fucking place, and it's always it, it's always in the form of I like this. What's that? You've never heard of that? No. Oh, what's wrong with you? Yeah, kids it's a generation today. gap between like people who are middle aged and the young teenagers of the movie, baby boomers versus Gen X. But then, versus... but then there's also the the oh my god, the one that just made me made my fucking like brain flare up with some kind of some kind of like awfulness. I, I can't even speak right now. It's a bad is when Annie's the character of Annie who does we find out does survive Halloween one when her her her, uh, her father has one of her neighbors come over to check on her because it is Halloween and, you know, Michael Myers may be back and he's his parent. Has one of her neighbors that's like, I don't know, is he, I think they grew up together, come yeah, over. Yeah, they were five and they're like neighbors. And he's this weird, like, cross between a hipster and a comic book nerd. He's just nervous. He brings over, like, nachos to eat for dinner and he just goes in to talk about, like, comic books and comic cons and it goes on eternally. 
And he's arguing with Andy the merits of... Con- you could see me right now, Tim. I'm sitting here, like, rubbing my fucking eyes. Yeah, because, this is hurting. because the whole time... This is hurting me. This is hurting he, me. Because this was a Darren? Darren, the, char- the uncredited character of Darren. I looked in IMDb, he's there, but he is uncredited because his character was cut completely. And he's talking about inviting Annie to... to I go a, to Comic-Con with him. Like, com- say, we can make you a costume, have different material, whatever. And she, is, she has no interest whatsoever. She... If she tries to be kind to begin with, but he does not take a hint, and he keeps talking and talking and talking and talking, and you're just like, it's a solid five minutes of just like a one-sided like argument here because Annie doesn't want to give a shit, and Annie's the audience at that point because it makes no sense for him to be there other than just to pad out the scenes and everything. Maybe to give, maybe it's because you sympathize with Annie a little bit more at that moment. That so when she does get the axe, that uh, you feel even. Uh, worse for her, but I, I, I think it's it's completely redundant, and I'm so glad they cut it. I, uh, I, 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 and here's the thing, though, I'm actually not angry about Rob Zombie doing this because uh, you know I, I'm befuddled by it, I'm mystified by it, I'm I'm just, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not angry about it because You're disappointed. No, I'm actually. In a weird, strange, morbid way, though it may not sound it, kind of pleased with it because if he's going to be put through this where he's promised this creative control and then they say, yeah, but as well as the fact that it's the Weinstein company, he's basically jerking off with Harvey Weinstein's money. And anyone, anyone that, that fucking costs Harvey money makes me happy. Yes. So it's like he, he, he's basically given the middle finger to, to people that I feel deserve you know, deserve a fucking punch in the face. Right. So that's why I that's why I accept it. That's why I tolerate it. That's why I'm not angry about it. Because it's like, all right, at least he's wasting those douchebags' monies. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it does make me happy in that regard. But, and so, where were you when you first saw this? And what were your feelings going into it? Uh, well, um, where I was, that's a whole story. And why I really connect with this movie so much. Um... Leading up to the in the year, you know, I I, I uh, saw that this was announced and that Rob Zombie was coming back. So I'm like, okay, you know, my my feelings on the original one were very mixed. They still they still are. I mean, listen to our review, right? Which you know, the bulk of it's from 2016 with little beginning with little beginning and ending we put on for to update it for this year and our feelings. Right. My feelings are still very mixed. I still feel the same as I did two weeks ago when we recorded those little intros and outros. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I, I was interested. I was fascinated. Um, when the first trailer was released, you know, interested, fascinated a little more. A lot of things that stuck with me. That, and there was a quite a number of uh, scenes in the trailer that ended up on the cutting room floor and a few that were not included in in the uh, DVD release. And if they did, they were on, you know, something we didn't watch, one of the special features we didn't watch. Right. I mean, the, at least, like, certain movies will shoot scenes just for trailers, like there's specifically uh, there's a Batman Begins trailer where has like, a new like monologue from Bruce Wayne and Alfred that like not in the movie whatsoever and it just is a sizzle reel just to get you into the theater. I'm not sure this was the case though because no, it, Rob Zombie is notorious for getting an idea while on set and then just filming it right on the fly. Yeah, and he's no he's not shy to shoot a lot of footage for a movie. I mean, I, I would hate to be his editor, have to try and cobble together his oh, movies. Boy. I at least hope he's there with me. Yeah. And just like, like I have the script here, and I still don't make sense of what you're trying to do here. But I was definitely interested in, in the new look they were going for with Michael Myers. You could tell they were going to take a lot of chances in this. Uh, Michael Myers is not strictly, you know, guy in a mask with 
wearing coveralls anymore. I believe he is still wearing the coveralls, but he's wearing like, you know, several, like a hoodie and a large jacket because, you know, he disappeared at the ending of one, which we'll get into when we get the... Uh, we start breaking it down. When we start breaking it down that he like disappeared and he, you know, and he very realistically has been just living out in the wilderness. So, and since Rob Zombie is presenting this much more grounded and realistic, which, you know, take it or leave it for better or for worse, you know, he... Michael Myers would need to keep cold in the winter. I mean, keep warm in the winter. Mm. Keep cold. So there was definitely an update to his look. And the mask this time, the mask was more damaged. Apparently, and, and I could, and, and this is my first thought when I real, when I first saw him. Because everyone thought, oh, how did he survive? He gets shot in the head, head in the beginning. When I saw the damage on the left side of the mask and how in other parts of it that big hunk was missing, instantly I said, oh, the bullet just grazed his head. Now the mask is even further damaged. I kind of like that look, and we don't really fully get it until the movie's more than half over, when uh, the damaged part of the mask is ripped off by a victim who's just grabbing at his face. Mm. I really feel it adds quite a bit, because the way the eye hole sits with his on the right side of the mask with his actual eye, it's kind of off a little bit. Yeah, it's asymmetrical at that point. And Tyler Maine showing that part of his face, and just like, like his expression there really... It worked for me. It kind of, it kind of gave me a little bit of the bit of the willies, you know, like because now we can see a little bit more of him, but we can't still can't see him. Mm. I mean, his look. I still prefer the traditional coveralls and everything, but I still, but I like the damaged mask. Yes. Like, I mean, like when he's got, he got the blood and everything. Um, it definitely seems like uh, I I mentioned to you before when we're watching it. Um, it definitely seemed like like Tyler Mayne is a big as in terms of like like uh sizes and like muscle or, or mass i should say but it definitely seemed like he was bulkier here not as bulky like say like in like halloween 2 versus halloween 4 like nothing that extreme but it definitely seemed like he had put on some muscle from between movies original halloween 2 yeah and by the way this movie is commonly abbreviated as h2 so that's probably what we'll re- refer to it yes and I remember, like, my personal experience, like, hearing it, I think I, I was on MySpace at the time when I saw it because I followed him on MySpace and when that he dropped, like, a video, I guess, uh, I guess maybe it was around Christmas or something like that, or maybe, maybe it was the Halloween before, saying that he was going to do a, another Halloween movie, and he was, like, filming himself in his house and, like, on a handy cam, and he's like, all right, uh, yeah. Before so, selfies, long before selfies. Yeah. He's like, well, we're going to do another Halloween movie, and, um... Uh, Yep, hopefully it'll come out around August, and uh, yeah, it was like, like the enthusiasm was oozing off of him at that moment. Yeah, and and I do remember, I, I I do remember after seeing the trailer, I didn't have the same level of hype after seeing the first trailer as I did for his first movie. That just that fucking trailer was just it, it, still to this day I watch it and I'm just like I, I'm almost disappointed. It's like man, if he had just if he had just gone. With the same style, the same look, the same feel as what he began in this, like I guess, rough edit of this mm. trailer. I think I would have liked it a little bit more. I think I would have liked it a lot more, actually. Right. And like I, I said before, like I was a fan of that movie when it first came out. And going to this, I'm like, I'm excited. I'm like, okay, we got another Halloween movie with these people. Like, let's let's uh, let's see what it looks like. But how'd you first see it? Um, well, the story of how I first see it is actually a pretty sad and depressing one. I'm, a, I'm about to put on my Captain Bringdown hat and bring this whole thing down, but truthfully, my story actually really ties in with why I relate to this movie, why I, why I love Laurie's character even more in this. Uh, a year prior to when this movie came out, um, 
I had gotten word from my half-brother. I was born in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, my parents split up when I was a ba- still a baby. My father, you know, lived there. He went off. He got married, had, you know, two other kids. So I've had half-siblings. And I always kept in touch with them, you know, sporadically throughout the years. Uh, unfortunately, in, I believe it was April of 2008, I was notified by my half-brother via MySpace that my half-sister, who was 16 at the time, was diagnosed with uh, grade 4 astrocytoma. That's a type of brain cancer. And the survival rate was, like, so dreadfully low. It was, like, 4% survival rate for one year. She had a 4% chance of living a year. So I flew out there, you know, visited. And that's where really my, my relationship with that side of the family started, you know? You I really mean, didn't have that strong relationship? Like- I didn't. We, I, we would... You know, talk on the phone every every you know year or so, whatever. I never felt like the, that's the thing though. It's like I never knew this side of my family. You know, it it just I remember growing up as a toddler, like before I understood, before I had the birds and the bees, where do babies come from? I just thought I didn't have a dad. I just thought you know, I, I didn't even think it was like the whole where do babies come from? Oh, the stork brings them. I just thought like okay, I just don't have a dad. I just you know. Mm. When you want a baby, you just decide you have a baby, and you could do it without mother or father. I just thought, thought I didn't have a dad, and like you know, when I remember, I remember, I can't, I can't remember exactly my first memory of when my mother told me, "Oh yeah, we're gonna call your father." It's like I have a dad. I, I think I told my mom, "It's like I have a dad." It's like yeah. It's like oh, I just thought I didn't have a dad because your mom had never brought him up at that point or anything. If she did, I was still too little to remember. Okay. Because obviously memory, you know, fades. You don't really start forming memories until you're a certain age. I, I my my earliest memory I could think of actually is from when I was two years old. Oh yeah. I I was an insomniac even at two years old. I do have a memory of me in the middle of the night, unable to sleep in my crib. It's funny, like my earliest memory is a crib memory as well, and it was actually, um, and I was just like, because I had woken up and I wanted more warm milk to go back to sleep and everything, and I was just like calling out from my crib to my parents who were in the next room to feed me and so that I can go back to sleep and everything. So that's weird. Like the most, I guess most people feel like that they had that earliest memory is crib memories. Interestingly enough, my second earliest memory is when I was four-year-old taking a piss. That explains so much. For whatever know. reason, I just have a memory of when I was four years old, I was taking a piss. <laughs> so anywho, back, yeah. to, back to my sad story. Now yeah. that this moment of levity is over. <laughs> over, the, over the course of the next year, you know, I would go I would go visit every couple of months. Whenever I got some vacation time at work, I'd, I'd go fly out and I'd visit. Unfortunately, uh, by the month of August, I was called and told there wasn't much time left. For me, this was bad because this was only a matter of weeks after my great aunt who... My mother and I moved in with after she split from my father and we moved back here because my mother went, my mother met my father when she was at college at the University of Dayton. Mm. When we moved back to Long Island, as my mother was raised here, my family is all from here, we moved in with my great aunt. And my great aunt really was my second parent. So, you know, this was co- being told this was coming, you know, less than a month after losing one of my parents, truly. So I flew out there again, you know, went on sick leave at work. And just spent, like, the last month of her life with her, of my sister's life. And while I was there, you know, my uh, half-brother and I, me, him, and his friends, we went to go see Halloween 2. And unfortunately, the very next day after seeing Halloween 2, she passed away. Um, I was actually, I can remember when I saw the movie, like, I I remember a lot of of when I saw it in theaters on opening day. Um, I do remember 
noted, I, I remember as many things as I thought were fucking just dumb. I do remember a lot that just stuck with me saying like, man, this is different and I'm kind of digging it. So I started, you know, typing up like a review, like like a, when we used to blog back in the day on MySpace and Facebook, right? right. Typing up like a Facebook uh, review. And unfortunately, when my sister passed, I kind of just lost all interest in it and I deleted it. Mm. I didn't even, Actually, I never even finished it. I just like saved it as a draft on like a notepad file and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not into this no more. Right. But that was how I saw it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you have a happier story? Um, relatively, yeah. I, I, I mean, like I didn't mean that in a coarse way or anything. Uh, no, because at this I get it relatively happy. I didn't mean it like that. I know you did. Shut the fuck up. Stop crying. Stop I, whining. <laughs> Stop. Stop being such a pussy. You fucking shot me. Uh, the bridge is out. <laughs> just gonna do sh- anything goes, folks. We're just going to do Schwarzenegger Whoa, coats the rest the of the video. The bridge is out. Well, Jimmy Lee Curtis is that movie, so it's tangentially connected. So... Uh, by this point, I was old enough to go into the movies by myself because uh, I was over a- a- the age of 17 at this point. Uh, just like how I saw the first Halloween with my friend Renee, it was he and I went to go see this together because we saw the first one together. So, like, well, we should keep it up because we're both fans of the series and we both dug the last one. I drove us in my first car, which is a 1997 Dodge Neon uh, White Lightning, as I used to call it. And it was the bane of my sister's knee at the end. But And so we go and see it. And I'm like, all right, well, cool. Hopefully it's like a lot like the last one, and we'll be happy with it. Movie plays out. We leave. We get in my car, and we're sitting at a stoplight. And we're both just like, huh. That was something. Yeah. And we couldn't really put into words how we felt at that moment. I, I certainly can put into words now, um, especially because it was kind of like my general consensus, like much of the other people who saw it, that were not, I was not a fan of it. And I was kind of curious, like, where can they go from here? I mean, it seems like Michael's dead. Like, will Laurie be the next one? But uh, it, it didn't end up turning that way. And so, like, it, the series went into a nine-year coma, much like between Halloween, the, the events of Halloween 1 and 4, but, and so... It really was written off very quickly. Yeah. Very quickly, like, people because just... they made half of the uh, success of the first one. It made barely $40 million. It was like 39 and a half compared to the 85. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it still made a profit. Because it was the same budget of like $15 million. Yeah, but it, it didn't make as much. And it's not that they didn't try to make more. It's just that there was roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Because Zombie said he was done after that point. Zombie said he was done. There was, there was a, you know, attempts at thoughts of continuing it with different directors and writers who dropped off to, always dropped off to do other things. And there was ownership changes. There was the, the ill-fated Halloween Returns that was announced in 2015. I mean, all these things we'll get to when we cover Halloween 2018 next month. But mm-hmm. this was the longest layover between Halloween movies. This effectively, for, uh, until last year, this effectively ended Halloween. Because at this time, it was... And I f- well, I also, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry to cut you off, but I feel like it's kind of unfair to, to blame it completely on this movie. I mean, it's it's not a great movie. It can be debated that it's good or not. I think you have to. I think it's one of those things where you have to kind of figure it out, and um, you kind of got to figure it out yourself and find 
what Rob Zombie was going for in it to appreciate it, and not everyone really seemed to be able to. I mean, Resurrection outright fucking sucked it. There's nothing to find there except the exit or the <laughs> off switch or the fucking breaker box. <laughs> I mean... I know certain listeners of this show really dug it, and I know some people don't really like it, so... I saw it twice, actually, in theaters. Oh, really? When, like when I got home from, from you know, my sister's passing, uh, went with two of my friends. By this point, the movie had been out for almost a month, mm-hmm. so the theater was practically empty. I was supposed to have seen it again uh, with a, a uh, la- lady friend I knew who I was trying to go out with at that time. Is she and, a co-worker? No. Okay. And... She actually told me she was going to pay for my ticket as a birthday thing. My birthday is in early August, but unfortunately, like days after my birthday, I had to leave. Right. And interestingly enough, I had I, I remember seeing like well, you know like MySpace quizzes back in the day. People used to do. I always thought that there was there was one thing in a MySpace quiz that she had said that she had always wanted to have sex in a movie theater, and she almost did with someone once, but they chickened out. So. I, I, maybe I should have gone one more time to go see it in the theater because I, I mean, it's a movie would... I don't mind, and I would have. Gotten it, and I may have had the ability to have sex with a girl I liked in a the movie theater. Hi, Amanda. <laughs> I, yes, I, I was totally into you back then. And, uh, I, I'd have been down for that. I mean, that would make two of us that have gotten uh, sexual favors done in a movie theater. I never actually had it done in a movie theater. I know. I almost I, did. I, well, I, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't fucking know. I got the third base in the movie theater. But, cool. uh, <laughs> I mean, like that, it was just a boring movie and there was nobody else in there it was like it was, it was just the two of us and probably the projectionist if they were even in the booth or not but and so years go by and of course the series was uh rebooted or reboot reboot and it was sequel the, rebooted yeah or seaboot seaboot with, with Halloween 2018 which uh we're all excited for but let's get into the movie itself and so the movie opens up with text about a white horse yes interestingly enough now this is both cuts of the film because there we have the theatrical release obviously that was put in theaters but after that released on t- when the home versions came out there was a director's cut much like his first movie ironically enough and strangely enough the director's cut is like far more available than the theatrical cut. I remember yeah, how, it's strange. I had to actually order the theatrical cut online because I could not find it in stores anywhere. And on Blu-ray, freaking good luck getting your hands on the theatrical cut because I, I don't think it's ever actually been released in America. I mean, I have it as part of that uh, Blu-ray two-pack I got from Alliance Entertainment. Right. I mean, it's like your simple, it, it's it's your basic Blu-ray double pack you find on the shelf stores for like five bucks. Yeah, around this time of year, they want to get pumpkin spice lattes and wear Uggs and like that. that's how basic it is. Yeah, and I mean, there's no special features that come with it, but it is the theatrical cut. And this is the only, and it was, I think it was only released in Canada because the, the only other language track that comes with it is French. So, but I mean, that's the only way on Blu-ray to, to watch it. And I'll cover that a little more in depth. Oh, uh, we didn't try the YouTube version of it. What YouTube version of it? Of Halloween 2 on YouTube. Because I know, because we watched the theatrical cut of Halloween on YouTube. Yeah, that's because we, that's because I thought I didn't, that's because I thought I owned it, and I actually didn't. Yeah, we just had to resort to that. Yeah, we we didn't check out if it was the unrated cut or not on YouTube or not, so. Yeah, so I I don't know what's available there digitally. I mean, at this point, you could probably just steal this fucking movie and no one will care. But there are two, two very distinct cuts of this film. A lot of them, they both have a lot in common. They both have a lot not in common, but they start up the same way. Uh, the opening credits, we get a little bit of a text 
talking about a white a white horse. Yes. Uh, I have here these credits. White horse linked to instinct, purity, and the drive of the physical body to release powerful emo- and emotional forces like rage with ensuing chaos and destruction. Excerpt from the sun- subconscious psychosis of dreams. So we begin with in the which past. I think, which I think that came about because he was on tour and he saw horses run across the... And he had an album called Educated Horses. Yeah. And if you listen to that album, you can tell they're not that educated. They're like, they're like, Foxy, Foxy. They're like Alabama school educated. No, I wouldn't go. Th- I one, would. <laughs> one of my friends is a teacher in Alabama, so that's why I'm gonna. He's got sit- it made. And I'll step away from that comment. That that comment does not reflect my views. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> but anywho, we open with in the past during Michael's incarceration, a routine visit from his mother Deborah, mm-hmm. once again played by Sherry Mood Zombie. This time, our young Michael Myers has been replaced. Uh, Dave Furrick was originally cast as Michael Myers. But he had puberty. Well, yes. he, did, he They filmed a scene with him, and it is available, actually, in the trailer. They did, like, a screen test scene. And Rob Zombie felt that at this point, you know, he was starting to... He was getting a little too old for this role. Like, puberty had begun to hit. There was no way he could still portray the, the child that he was right. before. He was, notice, he was noticeably more of a man. Mm-hmm. Um... I believe I read somewhere that Dig he was disappointed. I mean, Rob, he did put it as nicely as he could. Like, Dig is a man now. Unfortunately, this role requires a child. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he was recast. I heard he drove out his house through candy corn at him. And he said, ah, you're not going to be in this movie anymore. That's probably what actually happened. <laughs> Who the hell knows? He was actually recast by a young actor named Chase Wright Vanek. Now, I know you were saying during the screening of this, you actually like him more than Dig Furk. Yes. I don't know if I do because we don't spend as much time with him. We don't spe- we don't spend as much time with him. We most of the scenes we get with him are after Michael's already been incarcerated. So this is during Michael's descent. Only one this scene in the very beginning do we see even a glimpse of the cheerful young boy he once was. Right. And unfortunately, there's not enough basis for comparison. Yeah, because I feel like the, the, the sense of chemistry and camaraderie between Sherry Muzambi and Chase that for some reason just can, just hit me more than when Dig and Sherry sh- shared scenes together. Now, do you think that's because of the context of Sherry and Chase's scenes? Is it just the context of the scenes themselves? I, it could be, but like I just feel like because there was there's a plethora of moments that Dig and Sherry had in the first movie that I was that dwarf this one. Yet I, I for some reason I just responded well to this one. See, I, I'm I'm on the fence. I don't have a full opinion because the the interactions we get in this movie, which we will get into, are mostly through adult Michael's visions, and it's essentially it, it really is just ghost versions that he visualizes. It is an actual mother and son interaction, like we got in the 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 first one. It's more Michael seeing visions of the ghost of his mother. With a white horse, laugh if you want. I mean, I, I'm under. I understand it, and I'll explain a little more of why I understand it. And yeah. and whenever he's talking to his mother, there's young Michael in his clown costume that he used to commit the murders. They're doing the talking for adult Michael. I see it as that. Maybe we're getting onto this a little too early, but I see when you have those scenes of adult Michael having speaking to his mother. 
through young Michael, through a visualization of young Michael, that is how Michael Myers, the human, views himself. Yes. He still views himself. He never escaped being this 10-year-old boy in his Halloween costume. When he puts on the mask, and I believe I talked about this in the in our previous review, he says in the first one that he wears masks to hide his ugliness and how when Dr. Loomis asks him about the murders and wants to talk about it, he says, I didn't do that. I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't there. That when Michael wears a mask, he becomes the shape. Right. So that there is kind of a split personality thing going on. That or there's a distinction, uh, disassociative disorder. Yeah. That that when almost like Norman Bates, that when Norman's in danger, mother takes over. Right. When Michael's in danger, or Michael's family that he loves is threatened, the shape takes over, puts on this mask to hide, to, to basically to shield Michael from what's about to happen, and and the shape carries out these horrible acts. Mm. Now, one of the issues that we've taken with H2, unfortunately, this may be a result of Rob Zombie not giving a fuck. It may have been an oversight, but there are a couple instances here and there where he kind of breaks this own continuity. Yes, that's why I think I have such a problem with this movie because of the breaks of continuity, because it definitely seems... It definitely seemed the modus operandi for the first movie was that it was nurture. It definitely seemed like it was nurture that made him be a killer, because it was so blatant how traumatic of like or how tough of a fall. Oh, how, how his family life had completely deteriorated. Yes, and even like even that's a question that's asked in the director's cut, not some theatrical cut. Um, during a Q and A session with Doctor Loomis, they say like you have no like of the nature. Was that a deleted scene? No. Okay. It was in the director's cut. It was because that scene extended in the director's cut versus um, no, because in the deleted scenes they talk about the what would Michael do T-shirts that shows up that shows up again in uh, during the book signing, and, and like he asked the questions about nature versus nurture, like what makes you a killer, what makes you a killer, and what um, I just turned to Jimmy two times there, uh, and you're gonna get the papers, get the papers, get the papers, get the papers, and trying to figure out what would be the motivating factor behind Michael's killings. And that, that question's not even uh, answered whatsoever. It's left ambiguous. And I, I guess that's what his his idea of going into this one, because it's like, all right, because it definitely seems like it's in his nature to be like this, because it definitely is being um, facilitated both in Michael's psyche as well as Laurie's psyche. Now, here's where I'm going to disagree with that to an extent. In the original teaser that I absolutely love of the first Rob Zombie's Halloween, it starts out with the saying, like I'm paraphrasing here, inside each and every one of us there's a dark side. Most people rise above it, others are consumed by it. There's, I'm pretty sure you nailed it there. There's, okay. Well, there's the psychological argument that all of us have an insanity deep within us, but through... Oh, well, every human's in, in, capable of in deplorable It's things. not about capable. I mean, it's like every single one of us has a mental illness inside of us. I guarantee you that each of us could go see some kind of psychiatrist who just... and could diagnose us with a textbook example of something, but with an extremely low severity. Right. Where it's not going to, you know, hurt us, we can overcome it. However, because because mental... There are... The studies have been out there that mental illness a lot is caused by brain chemistry. Yes. I also believe that... Or brain injury. Yeah, brain, injury brain chemistry. Yeah. But I also believe that life experiences can alter your brain chemistry. And I'm no... Folks, I'm no psychiatrist. I'm not sitting here trying to tell you what is... Nor do you play one on TV. Nor do I play one on TV. I'm not trying to tell you what it is. I'm just telling you 
opinion, what I think. This is all shit that is highly up for debate and always has been. I do believe that experiences can alter brain chemistry. I do believe experiences can bring out things in brain chemistry that were suppressed before. I kind of feel like it's a little bit of both. I kind of feel like it's there was a mental illness inside the Myers family, but it wouldn't have been brought out if the deterioration of the family and Michael's you know, decline and turn into a killer didn't cause him to snap. Right. And you sound like a person who says, who wants to vaccinate your kids? You sound like a quack, sir. Yeah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> There's no way I was not letting that joke pass by. But I think there is enough information here to make that about argument. Do I see like that's... I, I still feel like it's a little bit of like it changing and having all of a sudden incredible, incredible mommy issues in this one when it was not really that... Blatant, and then that was next the first one. It definitely seems like it's, this is more Friday the Thirteenth than it is Halloween here. Well, as we as we continue, I will ex- I will explain a plot point that is hotly debated that I understand. But I do have a quote here from Rob Zombie describing Laurie's psychological state. It says, "Quote: As Laurie is Michael's sister, I'm playing it like he's clearly insane, and so is she. But her insanity doesn't manifest itself in the same way. She's slipping into insanity throughout the whole movie. That goes with my feeling of." The Myers family has a mental illness that if Michael, if their if they, their family didn't deteriorate the way it did, and Michael's mental illness didn't take him over, it wouldn't have caused Lori's. If Lori grew up normal, this mental illness may have never shown itself. Just like with you know all of us out there, many of us that go lead good lives, you know whatever whatever you know quirks we have never escalate. Right. You know, they it's, never go cripp- cripplingly wrong and well, destructively wrong. Which, like, you could argue the fact that, like, there, there is a, a – it could be hereditary with a mental illness because Michael went the way he did. Um, his mother does end up killing herself, and then Lori goes crazy here. And there are studies out there saying that mental illness is hereditary. Mm-hmm. and. And so I know some people say, like, oh, that's why they really enjoy this one, because it's an exploration of hereditary uh, mental illness as well as a result, a severe take on PTSD and trying to live after a huge traumatic event. And we'll get into that. That's one of the things I absolutely love about this movie. Right, because the movie opens up. After that text, we hear audio from the first movie play. And we hear the final gunshot, and then we see Lori walking to the town. Well, before that, in in the flashback, she gives Michael, it, when, when Deborah Myers comes to visit her son, she gives him a little statue of a white horse. And Michael says that the horse reminds him of a dream he had where she was visiting him in this long hallway, and she was dressed up all in white like a ghost with a white horse. And he thought it was a nice dream, you know. He wanted to be out of there. And that's when we have our one single moment of, like, levity between the two where she's like, I bet you're ticklish. No. You know, it's that nice mother and son moment that if we had gotten more of, I would be able to decide whether I like Chase Van Eck more than Dave Ferg. Mm -hmm. But anywho, we, you know, cut to 15 years later after the title card. Which I do think it's a nice smash cut from tonally from scene to scene. Oh, it definitely is. But after Lori allegedly shot Michael in the face at the end of the first one, uh, we find her just wandering around town aimlessly, gun still in her hand. Just yeah, she's in shock at this point. Zone the fuck out. It's raining. It, it's now. raining, and she's like, and she's literally just like taking baby steps across town. And eventually, Bracket finds her, 
stops her from walking, is able to get the gun away from her, as, and he's trying to keep her calm here. But the, she does not stay calm for long. She's starting to break. She's I killed him. I killed him. He attacked her. And killed. then, wham. Then, wham. We get Brackett takes her to the emergency room. It cuts to her in the emergency room. On the fucking gurney, held down as best you can because she is freaking the fuck out. And she doesn't know what's going on. Like screaming at the top of her lungs, covered in blood, covered in cuts, covered in. I think there's even a piece of bone exposed and to her leg. She's asking, Am I going to die? Am I going to die? Am I going to die? And the, you know, the nurses are freaking out. That one of the nurses is played by Carolyn Williams. Carolyn Williams, who, who doesn't age. Yeah. Who played Stretch in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. She's one of the nurses, and, you know, we go into. The, we really go. We really go into the beginning of the aftermath of the first one. Yeah. One of the things, and I've said this before, that I wish there could be in these movies because I fucking love the series so much, is that we never get a true epilogue. We never really get to see the aftermath of you know what happens to these people. Right. Because I really believe that the aftermath, if done right, is just could be just as interesting as the as the event itself. Mm. This movie is that aftermath, and I feel there's so much about it done right. Bunch of things done wrong, but yeah, there's a lot done right. And this movie really is just a one demonstration of fucking PTSD and a, and a how one horribly traumatic event can just send a person fucking spiraling downward. Mm. And I, re- I I relate to this movie a lot. Now I I've never been had this fucking serial killer that turned out to be my brother, no. you know, try to kill me or anything. But like between you know sister. You know, my father, I think I've even said it. But I think I said it in the last one in the, w- that we recorded two years ago. Uh, my father committed suicide. The, right. the, the depression of losing his daughter just drove him into a downward spiral. He only lived another six years before he took his own life. There's that. There's just abandonment issues I've had with friends. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of people I really love die. I mean, I mean and there's a lot of white person problems, too. Like my mother... Getting married to my stepfather and, you know, the life I knew for 12 years just being fucking uprooted and just being like, wait a minute, now I have this now. And, you know, having to deal with siblings for the first time because I'm an only child, Mm -hmm. at least for my mother. And uh, just a lot of things and uh, issues with friends, you know, I mean, we all I'm sure we all have the, you know, phony friends that abandon us or whatever. I've had that a few times in the past. Right. And I was officially diagnosed with PTSD. Because of events I've made clear on this show before about my mom's drinking got into such a point where, like, that she had physically attacked me at one point and that I needed to flee for my life out of the house and everything. And that she had to be, she had to be taken down in handcuffs, like, by my family because, like, we thought she was a danger to all of us. Mm. And, and the fact that that was the last time I saw her alive was in the back of a cop car screaming that screaming for her dad screaming for help and so all that combined and that's why this viewing experience um, was a lot different and it definitely especially in the director's cut I think it's it's highlighted even more about like how Lori's standing and how her mental state is in such flux because of her emotions, or and she's able to go zero to a hundred to her words in one direction or another, which I think it definitely hits upon that in a very it's a hits in I would say in a true fashion. I mean, like it is it's obviously heightened because of like the subject matter at hand, but it, there is some truth in that art right there. Oh yeah, and I, and I honest to God have to give just like f- just full. 
credit and full just admiration, appreciation to Scout Teller Compton, who was back in the role of Laurie. Yeah. She fucking, I, I really feel she knocked it out of the park in this one. I've read reviews where people just say, oh, she's whining and screaming all the time, but it's like, she's conveying real emotion. And I feel between the two cuts, unfortunately, we don't get all of the same scenes no. or the same length of scenes between the two cuts. I wish we did because there's so many of them that really just show, and, and they're within a short period of time, there's so many of them that within just a short span really just show how, how screwed up she is, how one minute she goes from just this just bitter, anger-filled, frustrated person that'll just tell somebody off, get in their fucking face, and then the next she's just crying about all the things she's lost. Yeah. And the hor- and the horror she's experienced, you know? Mm-hmm. And I-, I wish those were both in there together because she did so damn good. Mm-hmm. And so while they're patching up Lori in the hospital, we were cr- it's cross-cut with the police and coroners dealing with the aftermath at the Myers house. Now, this this was filmed in Georgia instead of um, Georgia. South Pasadena. And I do have to say that they the, the two really do blend nicely. They do make a point, especially at the Myers house scenes, to kind of cut everything very close. They did find a house that is somewhat close in color and a couple of structural areas, but for the most part, they are two very different houses. Yes. It's kind of like if you if you were to take your house that had a couple features that one did and try to paint it and make it look like that house. But they're not the same. So they made the wise choice of cutting everything very close, and I really felt it did blend in nicely. Mm. Shooting in Georgia, though, instead of modern-day South Pass, or even you know 10 years ago, gives it a much more rural feel. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. You could believably feel like it's in Illinois. It's in the Midwest. There are a lot of, you know, like, uh, I guess it would be helicopter, farmland shots. Yes. You know, Lori, eventually, skipping ahead just a little bit, Lori moves in with Sheriff Brackett and Annie, and they live in a house that seems very out in the countryside, kind of secluded on the mm. outskirts. But but I, I really, and even like the town square that we visit a whole bunch of times, the mm. uh, barn party at the end, similar to the tower farm party, it, it definitely gives you that Midwestern feel so they definitely know the look of it it would have been not, once again it would have been nice if they could have stayed in south pass but it was it was done for uh financial reasons because of georgia becoming a tax shelter for productions and it was starting around this time and then it's and obviously blown up now I i'm mean, sure if there's one thing harvey loves it's his tax shelters oh yeah but uh, he has no access to anymore exactly yeah there there's no shelter for you anymore but speaking of the look of the movie um it's not Filmed yes, in this... uh, two, three, five, a widescreen cinemascope. It's not even filmed on thirty-five millimeter film. For the first time in the series, it's shot on sixteen millimeter film. And it's so. If you watch the two movies back to back, it is so fucking jarring. Yeah, Rob Zombie apparently is not a fan of two, three, five, and he wanted to go back to one, eight, five. Yeah, and... but, which is weird because he both shot then Lords of Salem and thirty-one in scope. I don't know. Maybe he changed his mind somewhere down the line. Yeah, maybe it, someone had a talk with him. Maybe maybe he went to film school and said, "Oh, that's how it works." No. But the sixteen millimeter does give, it, does give it that grindhouse feel, which he fucking jacks off to. Yeah, loves. because that is like he wishes he, it was still the seventies and B movie drive-ins where people are fucking shooting up and blowing each other in the backs of cars. And, I want to see. Like, I would love to see him. God, during a Rorschach test. I'd be afraid to see him during a Rorschach test. <laughs> and then have him draw what he thinks what the 1970s was. I think it would be the most all-over-the-place Rorschach test ever because yeah. it's like there's, there's the spoiled millionaire part of his brain telling the skate punks to turn it down. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the fuck the internet, I buy, buy CDs, 
that yeah. we got, that we got in, in a deleted scene. Oh yeah, and so and so. Yeah, but know, but meanwhile, I turned to Kickstarter to fund my last movie. <laughs> yeah. So I I mean, and then like, which I always found very laughable because at the very end of the movie, because there's still like it was like a budget of, like a million and a half, because I think it was like they part of the budget was Kickstarter, and then like the rest of it was done with like. Legit producers and his own money put into it. Is that Lords of Salem or Thirty One? Thirty One. Okay, because I know Lords of Salem was on a very small budget, but yeah, it looked great. Both of yeah, I mean that's the, the reason why because I think it was she doing a different thing aesthetically as well as it was shot on anamorphic lenses. It was shot in true widescreen. Have on, you seen those? I've never seen those. I saw Thirty One. Okay, that says everything. I, I saw like the first like ten minutes of Lords of Salem. It's his version of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> it's three, it's three witches coming back from oh. the dead. Which, funny enough, for the 25th anniversary, beer uh, makes everything better. <laughs> I'm not even drinking beer right now. It's for, I think yeah, it was the 25th year, 25th anniversary of Hocus Pocus. They did a screening of it in L.A. And the reason like I bring that up because Mick Garris of uh, Postmortem and Masters of Horror, who did Critters Two, like the Shining uh, miniseries uh, for uh, for Sci-Fi Channel, and a bunch of other stuff. He was the first writer on Hocus Pocus, and he, it like, nine years later, eventually got made, but he was one of the credited writers, despite numerous writers after him. So they did a Q&A session after Hocus Pocus, but it was Hocus Pocus and Lords of Salem in a double bill. And so I think, like, wow, it's pretty much, it's kind of like the same movie, just back-to-back. But it was definitely, the Lords of Salem was definitely a different aesthetic for it. It was meant to be, like, more of, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the filmmaker's name, like, Ken something, like, really, like, messed up, uh, psychological thrillers anyway and so here yeah it's done 16 millimeters done on fuji film and it's definitely a lot of the colors are desaturated it's he- it's a lot of grain and but essentially so it's shot in the dark for most of the part it seems like it's like one source light and that's it for the entire scene it's grainier than a bakery folks <laughs> and the things i'm not gonna sit here and say two three five is how halloween should be shot the entire fucking thorn trilogy was one eight five right but the thing is those two those three movies were kind of starting a new arc of this story like a new chapter so you could get away with changing a lot of things up like that. It wasn't like Halloween 2 was shot in 185. It still tried to be a direct continuation of the first one. If you're going to do that direct continuation thing, I, I kind of do feel like you-, you should continue with what you used last time. Right. It's like saying, like, all of a sudden, Star Wars is shot in the scope, but Empire Strikes Back is shot in 185. Yes. It just wouldn't feel right. No, I- well, I mean, I'm talking a direct continuation, like yeah. picking up minutes after the ending right. I- or-, I or-, or picking up. Immediately after the like, imagine if Halloween two, original Halloween two. Yeah. After after we go with this two three five beautifully thing when we get to the when we get to the new footage of Loomis running downstairs, all of a sudden it's one eight five. It's like wait what? I mean, granted, we did see that a lot as kids because we saw the pan scan versions at home video, but it's not originally intended to be like that. Well, I would notice. I remember watching a couple of uh, TV broadcasts of movies. And a lot of the ones that were shot in either 185 or 235, sometimes the credits would be so big that if you were to shoot them in pan scan, you'd be cutting off parts of the credits. So they would start in, you know, letterboxed. Yes. And I remember my great aunt complaining, like, why do they cut off the tops and bottom? you know, the, the old argument? Yeah. And then once the credits are over, it switches to, you know, 4 by 3 pan and scan. Right. Which takes up the full thing. Yeah. So, and so it's a different. It already has a different psychological effect on the audience. Well, now imagine that in the old days, like when shit was, you know, projected on film, when you had when you covered the unused parts of your screen with curtains. Yeah. And you, if it was two, three, five, the sc- curtains were pulled back so more of the screen. Was, now imagine mid movie. Imagine mid movie they pull, start pulling the curtains in. And you just hear. 
<laughs> that's not a, that's not like, a wait, <laughs> it's so funny uh, i remember when i went to the film forum in new york city to see uh, Les Samurai, a uh, Jean-Pierre Melville movie. Le Grill? What the uh, hell is that? <laughs> I know. It's the, it's the most film pretentiousness that I did. Like, I went into the, movies, the city by myself to see a 50-year-old French movie. I know. Uh, uh, I've watched The Red Balloon, too. So. <laughs> well, Red Balloon's awesome. And so is Les Samurai. But... Balloon? <laughs> the one cool... They had a leader of film going in through it so it, it had all different aspect ratios on there and so anybody who is doing the curtains or you were forming the uh, projectors of you knew like all right you look at your records like okay it's 166 not 185 so we can pull the curtains just a little bit more we drop a little bit here like that's really smart it also it helped with focusing the projectors going on because that's one that is part of the experience of seeing movies on film because there are the times when you switch one reel from another it goes into it goes slightly soft, and then you see it kind of snap back into focus because you know there's still a physical person back there projecting it. Yeah. And so, but back to Halloween. The point with Halloween is that if you're watching these movies back to back, you're going to notice something's weird. Yeah. It's a different experience. And then, so they bring out the bodies, including Michael Myers, which takes six attendants to get him in the van. Lo- Loomis is loaded into an ambulance, eyes open, implying that he survived. Now, if you watch the director's cut of... Rob Zombie's first Halloween, you know he did. The right. actual cut is left more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brackett tells the coroners there. Of course, the coroners have to be portrayed as fucking just dumb, uneducated rednecks saying, you know, just get the body back there. Lock the place up tight. I don't want any surprises. Well, I think uh, it's going to be obvious what the cause of death was. I don't think there's anything obvious about what happened Not here. Goddamn Not thing. a goddamn thing. Brad Dorff is back as Sheriff Brackett. Doing his most Brad Dorif-ness in here. And at this point, we are intercut with Lori in the hospital, and the the hospital workers, the nurses, and doctors that are performing surgery on her, very, very graphic. Yeah, I mean, it was to the point where both of us were kind of like, just like in our seats, like, this is uncomfortable. I remember in theaters, just, you know, people just like, uh, uh, groaning when they saw the sight of, like, her, her fingernail that was partially oh. torn off being removed, and... And all the pieces of glass they had to dig out of her and the uh, stitches on her face. It's which, very grisly. Which, if that was the intended effect of the movie, it, it worked. definitely worked. It worked. And I'm sure that's what doctors and nurses have to deal with every single day. Yep. So, Michael's loaded into the van. The coroners are taking him back. And on the way, we get more of Rob Zombie's brilliant, you know, dialogue that, that you know, I don't even think Sir Lawrence Olivier himself could do it justice. No, I mean, two- David Mamet's like, oh, I wish I could write like that. The two coroners having a conversation when they talk about Linda's dead body. I never thought about fucking a body until tonight. Telling stories about other coroners having sex with corpses and how the one says, I never thought about it until I saw Linda. You know, very, very tasteful. Yeah. It has the taste of roadkill, which Th- I'm sure. That actor. Rednecks- Who's like? Who says like? Hi, I never thought about that. He is the main antagonist in Thirty One. He's like he's the big bad of that one. I certainly see why. Yeah. And the I, other one who's saying don't joke about that, and then he makes a joke about that. Something about jelly and jam. And yeah. I, I, which I bet you like. I'll, I, I I won't spoil the punchline of that joke. You you folks can no, but I mean it. I understand there is blue humor in especially morbid situations to like break up and make sure there's a sense of levity even in like tense situations. I get that, and I'm sure corners and uh, probably do that real life and everything. But it's so done, so but, is but so tastelessly. How does that help the plot of the Halloween movie? No, and it gives and in a. Ensures the audience that has no sympathy or empathy for these characters. What happens next? Because they hit a cow. Yep, the one character is the laughing starts yelling, "Cow! What cow?" And they hit a cow on the fucking highway. 
And it's it's almost comical. Like I, I don't think hitting a cow with a van is funny, but it, it just the, the reaction to when the one guy sees it, the actual hit, it, it, it's and, and the ensuing aftermath is almost comical. The driver is killed. The passenger who's talking about fucking corpses with his gigantic teeth. This guy had some really big teeth. He's the one. Actually, wow! I just realized it. There's two Batman uh, uh, Begins references. He's the one who kills uh, Bruce's parents in Batman Begins. That's Joe Chill. That's Joe Chill. No. Yeah. Gonna, I, I bet you. I'm gonna look this up. I bet you every dollar in my wallet right now that he that they. Actually, How many do you have? Zero. No, I, I have like thirty bucks in my wallet right now. Um, I have zero, so if you win, that means you get nothing. Uh, yeah, whatever. And so, yeah, he plays Joe Chill in that, and he plays the coroner here. He survives, but, like, before that... Well, fuck me running. It is Joe Chill. Called it. Because Flass does show up later on in this movie. And if I... Yeah, the, the actor who played Detective Flass in uh, Batman he, Begins is he, also He should have movie. asked Michael if he doesn't like falafel or not. But... It cuts to a wide shot when the impact happens, and you just see the fake cow airborne for a moment. It is... Apparently, I, I was reading on IMDb Trivia, if you pause it just right, you could see the explosive on the front of the van go <laughs> off. I'm not sure if you go frame by frame, you could do that. Yeah, but you could see it clearly there, and then see, clearly see when it explodes, when uh, Which, the impact. like, hitting cows is actually a real... is a frequent thing that happens out in the country. I mean, one of my favorite videos on YouTube was dash cam footage in Russia... It is because like there's so many. There was actually a movie released of just dash cam footage, like spliced together in a oh, montage, boy. and including a dude coming out of a car with an axe. But there was, yeah, it was dash cam footage. He's driving in the country, and he's going like maybe 50 miles an hour at this point. A cow is going across the road. It's running across the road because there's another cow trying to mount it. Oh God! And the car slams into the mounting cow. And on the back side, like it's like the back two legs, and like ba boom, oh, the the windshield spider webs and cracking, and the car stops. The cow is phased, and then immediately tries to mount the first cow again. Talk about a cock blocker! <laughs> Seriously, and so hitting cows is a real thing. First driver's dead, and there's the other one. Anything goes, folks. We talk about hitting cows. And the other the one, the other corner is like, fuck, fuck. He fuck, he's seriously fuck. injured, bleading profusely. Well, we like, can't really see face. the extent of his injuries. He's just shot in a close up. You just know that like the seatbelt probably injured him seriously, and we just get this close up of him just groaning and trying to form a sentence, trying to form words, and the only word he could form is fuck, over and over again. That, 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 that's the extent of Rob Zombie's prowl. Uh, fuck! Uh, I, uh, I, uh, fuck! And there's fuck. More, more and more blood is spewing from his face and his multiple wounds. Fuck! I mean, it's not like, if you want, like, there is a great scene in The Wire. It's four minutes, or it's like three and a half to four minutes with two characters investigating a, a murder that happened months ago and then realizing there's something new about it. The entire dialogue between both of them is saying fuck. But it's so many different affectations and ways of uh, emphasizing it once the scene progresses. It tells a story with just saying the word fuck over and over. That does not happen here. It's just like the same just saying it over and over and over again. But anywho, on the on the uh, 151st fuck, I believe it is, I wasn't keeping count, uh, all of a sudden we see the van just boom and start to rock. Like someone's kicking, kicking from the inside trying to get it. Boom! boom. And of course this is hurting the guy even more, so he says even more F-bombs. And it's Michael. He's alive. He's broken out. The, the passenger now starts screaming, help me, help me. Michael walks to the front, picks up a piece of glass broken from the windshield, walks over. The guy's got a smile on his face for a second because he thinks someone's there to help. 
He sees who it is, and all of a sudden that uh, he, that upside down frown goes back. Yeah. And Michael proceeds to literally saw his head off, like saw it like you're sawing into a piece of steak. And literally decapitate him with this piece of glass. Decapitate him with this piece of glass. Oh, as Michael's carrying the severed head and he drops it, he looks out to the road, and he sees out there a figure with a large horse. It's the ghastly vision of his mother, like in his dream as he describes a child with a white horse. This has been probably the most mocked plot point of the Halloween series. Rightly so. That, hold on. Mm-hmm. However, I'm, I understand it. I am of the opinion that in this movie, we, we now see what is inside Michael's head and what has been in there the whole time. That during his whole you know, adult period in the original, this is what he's seeing, except only now the audience gets to see it. That these visions of his dead mother are the thing that motivates him. And, and we find out you know, a few scenes later what that is we go we go into it a little deeper but that is that is what i feel about the the often mocked you know mother ghostly mother white horse thing that we are now seeing what michael sees we are now privy to his information and you could say that you know oh god's just giving away more of the boogeyman it's demystifying him it's like folks that horse left the barn a long time ago that that horse left the fucking barn in the last movie of of the demystification of Michael Myers. If we're mm-hmm. going to do it any further, you know what? Is it really going to hurt anything at this point? Yeah, because I had to sort of sit through an hour and 45 minutes of this. Oh, time. shut the fuck up. Yeah, you not... were you were enjoying this just as much as me during Yeah, the... because we were having like a mystery science theater kind of or riff tracks. Uh, yes, but there were lots of parts I could tell you were enjoying. Yes, but like this is like, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, like even like this, it's just, it's a weird juxtaposition. I mean, it is on the level of Michael being stopped by rocks on the floor with Paul Rudd saying Sowin. I'd say that's worse. Uh, this is pretty close. This is a close I'd say second. that's worse because this is getting into Michael's head and showing that and when I will elaborate with this analysis a little further when we get into the next appropriate scene but showing that Michael Michael Myers mentally never escaped being the 10-year-old boy that he was when he was incarcerated. Right. It, it, but however it does it does seem it definitely seems like he just wanted his mother. I mean, his mom. He wanted his wife to be in the movie again, so he concocted his way to get his wife to be back as a ghost. Well, no shit. I mean, well, here's the thing, though, too. Even if they wanted to have flashbacks, he could get his wife in the movie. But at the same time, I, I really do understand this, and we'll we'll, we'll elaborate more well, as we I, continue. I think what underlines it more is, be, is the first of many iterations of slow motion to this movie when he approaches the horse that looks so. Uh, he looks like he's on tranquilizers, but somehow still standing. I mean. That's why I'm just like, oh man, this is uh, this is um, this is something. But after that, we we cut to we, we will continue. Yeah, Lori's back in the hospital, right? All stitched up and and uh, good. Nice and white satin by the Moody Blues is playing on the TV for some reason. And apparently, the, the, I don't know, maybe that whole video is on a loop because this continues. But anywho, it, it is a long song, but. We're in the hospital. Uh, Lori gets up, you know, realizes where she is, sees there's a nurse sitting there watching her who fell asleep, gets up, starts walking around, um, goes into Annie's room. This is the moment where we find out Annie did survive the events of the first one. She's been stitched up. The problem is, though, he should she should have gone up to Annie and said, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Fuck Annie? you. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
But she oh, sees. Do that later on. That would be more distasteful. She, she sees Annie, and she just immediately starts like bawling because just so upset that this all happened. Wants to be with her, and real. And I mean, well, I mean, we never really saw what Michael did to Annie, but apparently Annie got the worst of it. Mm-hmm. Which, after watching that Lori surgery scene, I don't know how, but anywho, the nurse comes in and tells Lori she has to go back to her room. Lori just wants she just wants to stay. She wants to stay with her friend. Make sure she's okay. Like she's, but the nurse insists and starts to escort her back to her room, but she gets an emergency call and, and tells Lori, you know your way back to the room? Lori nods, says yes. Nurse leaves her. And Lori attempts to go back to her room, but then turns back looking for the nurse. She, she starts having a headache. She just needs something for her head. You know, she just, she just came out of, you know, she just woke up after this crazy surgery. And, you know, her head's starting to hurt. So she goes back to find the nurse, goes back to the reception table. She's not there. The door opens behind her. The nurse just... Casually, nonchalantly walks out, then immediately turns around, and there's a slash, like a cross, like a vertical slash across her face next to her nose, and she just blood just starts pouring out, and then she starts screaming. And it's like, uh, even if, even if you didn't see the guy that did it, when it actually happens, I think I would fucking scream. Initially, I have no problem with it because I feel like she's in shock at this point. But and, and the, it's the fact of seeing her blood, that's when it becomes a reality for her, and that's why she starts screaming. But the initial hit hurts like a motherfucker, and you're going to make some reaction. Unless he was like so fast, and he was like almost like a ninja. Just... I can understand if it was like a shark attack, and you don't even have time to fucking react, but the fact that she nonchalantly walked out there, it's like, I think she I think she would have felt something first before going into shock. It's obviously for dramatic... Uh... It's for a dramatic effect. Yeah. So she screams, you know, collapses, and out walks Michael. Uh, the left, as we said earlier, left side of his mask fucking singed from the from the uh, bullet that grazed him. Mm. Uh, Tyler Maine is back, fortunately. Um, I feel he gives another great performance. Yes, Michael Myers. He still is my, you know, second favorite. We shall see James Jude Courtney in a month's time if he mm. where he ranks. But as a, at the time of this, he is you know still number two. And Laurie retreats. She runs away. Michael then decides to start. He decides to finish what he started with the nurse, and he begins stabbing her violently, over and over and over and over and over, like it never fucking ends. And the whole time he's doing it, he's now like doing this growl grunt. Ruff, ruff, ruff. He sounds like the cowardly lion. I was expecting after the last one to him to go. Hur-huh. I'm the king. Of the phone. <laughs> he kind of is a, a part of this movie, so. And that's one, I guess, thing about this movie that didn't work. The kills are a little on the uncreative side. There's a lot of just stabs over. It's a lot of just just stabs. There's a lot of just overdone, overstabbing. Yeah, it definitely seems like the creativity uh, and the kills are a little. Somebody firing a gun outside. No, it's fireworks. Oh, okay. At least I hope the gods probably works. Probably not. Well, the back door is open. So. Yeah. But Tim always leaves his back door open. <laughs> oh. And so Lori's on is on the lamb at this point. Where she's trying to run away, but she's got her her leg one of her in legs a boot. in a boot. She finds another nurse down the fire exit stairwell, fucking hacked sl- to pieces, and her eyes gouged out. Yep. And she ends up making her way to the basement as Michael slowly makes his way towards her and going down the flight of stairs much better than Dirk, Dirk Warlock's uh, uh, motionless way of getting down the flight of stairs. Yeah. See, how, see our Halloween 2 podcast. Uh, right. I didn't, think, I didn't think Dick Warlock gave the best performance, but it's also a factor he was following the fucking originator and the innovator. So yeah. I don't know who could have held up after that. But. I just think of... Um, uh, 
The originator, dominator, assassinator. Oh, Brother Midnight. Brother yeah. Midnight. But um, and so Laurie makes her way to the basement and. Well, this is where the first of our differences between the director's cut and the theatrical cut begins. This is an interesting one. Laurie, after escaping out the back, I guess through some boiler room exit, she falls into like this weird pit or large open top dumpster. Yeah. Filled with dead bodies. Yeah. To the brim. To the brim. And it looks like, I made the joke before, it looks like a metal album cover. Now, that's the thing. It looks like a metal album cover. It looks exaggerated. Now, presented realistically, I don't think Michael could kill that many people, especially with the way we see him killing people now. And nobody, and nobody notices. And maybe the kill, like, seemingly the entire population of the hospital, bring them to the basement and dump them there. Yeah. Now, this is only in the director's cut, by the way. In the theatrical cut, this is removed. I believe this was removed because this is the first... Hint that there's there's something kind of off about this that like it almost seems like this isn't real, right? Like something not about it. So, but keep that in, keep that in mind. More more on this subject in just a little bit. But yeah. anywho, she makes her way out to the I guess the rear entry, the rear exit of the parking lot. Mm. It's now torrential downpouring. Makes her way through to the to the uh, what is it? The security g- shack. The security shack at the front. Gets her way in. Michael is in hot pursuit. Michael gets, you know, gets to the back end of the parking lot where she was and sees a security guard pull up, pull up, played by security guard Buddy, the security guard, played by Richard Riel. Mm-hmm. You know, famous character actor. He's been in a lot of things. He's a big stocky guy with a big bushy mustache. Kind of talks like this. I heard that Buffalo Bob lit the firework up your palm crack. What? Hoo-ha. Yeah. But anywho, Laurie hides under the table. He gets in there with his coffee, you know, swearing a fit because it's a Rob Zombie film. Yeah. And she shows him that she's there like, oh, please help me. And he just tries to calm her down. She's you know, and, and, I, and I actually like this moment between the two because it definitely seems like a genuine, like, care for this woman who is just, like, obviously a patient at the hospital. He tries to comfort her in the moment that she's, like, yep. freaking out. He leaves to go get his car, and it gets very, very quiet, except for the Moody Blues, which is still playing, Nights in White Satin, like, literally the same part that was in her hospital room. Yeah, is the chorus on, like, it's, like, on repeat at this point. Yeah. And she's calling to him, buddy! We, we don't know what happened. We know that Michael saw Buddy arrive, but we, we don't know what happened to him. And Michael now has an axe. Michael now is armed with a fire axe that he got a hold of because he just wants to axe you a couple of questions. But it turns out, you know, we get a uh, Buddy comes in, the door just opens, and we hear the rain, and it, it is Buddy back. It is in a very almost jump scare, false yeah. jump scare kind of way, but mm-hmm. I, I feel it was effective. Yeah, as a false startle. Because I think this is the scariest moment of the movie because it goes so quiet and you know he's out there. Yeah. That's the greatest sense of suspense of this movie for me. I, there are quite a few moments of like that. Like, like there are scares that are set up nicely where moments where you... Where you that and a certain police officer's death later on, I yeah. think it's like probably my favorite of the you, movie. You, you either do know he's there or you don't know he's there. And you're wondering, like, he's got to be around here somewhere. And you're wondering what's going to happen and he strikes in a very effective way, which I really do like. So Buddy opens up the front door, but the screen door is still shut to this shack, and boom, he takes an axe to the back, but he's killed by Michael Myers. Yeah. Michael then proceeds to do some remodeling work on this shack by, by axing the fucking living shit out of this place until he breaks through the whole window area I mean, with like, a roof and a roof and a roof. Not, uh-huh. by, not by the hair, by your chin, chin, chin. Well, I'll huff, and I'll, I'll puff, puff, and I'll, I'll axe your shack in. Yeah. Little pig, little pig, let me in. Not by the hair on my chinny chin chin. Well, I'm huffing, I'm puffing, I'm blowing your house up. Oh, green jelly, where are you? <laughs> the pigs they called Rambo. <laughs> hey, wolf, I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> I fucking love that one, the claymation Rambo <laughs> in the music video. 
And so Michael gets Green into Jelly, the, three little pigs. Watch it. Michael gets into the shack. He raises the ass. He brings it down. Wham! Lori rakes up screaming. It was all just a dream. Now That's where the whole pit of bodies thing, I feel, was deleted because that gives you the indication something's not right here. I'm going to write that down. Pit of bodies. Pit of, pit of bodies. That's going to be our first metal Rated song. Rated R. <laughs> You know, the whole dumpster full of bodies. It seemed a little too far-fetched that Michael would be able to do this. And it seemed like it might have been something out of a dream. Like, oh, my God, you know, everyone's... A dream that she's being chased by this person that killed her friends. Everyone's dead around me, you know? That's something that might manifest inside of a dream. Mm -hmm. So I I felt that made more sense in the director's cut. I think that that was your first clue that something wasn't right. This this point, actually, in the theater, I remember a lot of people going, oh, really? You know, being pissed that it was only a dream. Because Because there's no real... Other than that, in the director's cut, there's no indication of it being a dream. Yeah, we don't know where the dream... We and don't know where the kind af- of a cop out. We don't know where the there. aftermath of Halloween one and ends and the dream begins. Yeah, it's presumably after Michael sees the horse and we cut to the hospital. That's when the dream when begins. He, when he's walking down the street towards his the ghost of his mother and the the white horse. That's where that's where the flashback ends and the dream begins. Yeah. So Laurie wakes up, runs into the bathroom. Uh, in the director's cut. They show her, you know, heavily relying on medication to deal with this trauma. The theatrical cut, I don't think she does at all. I think she does take pills, but I think it's it's only just like, that. Is it just that once in the beginning? Yeah. And because that's the also, therapy sessions in the theatrical cut are not as prominent as there's in the director's cut. Yes, and it's subject matter too. And that is one thing about this movie that has made it a little hard for me. It's like I do have to have a plot synopsis here. I feel like. It goes back and forth between so many different things. It cuts back and forth between so many different scenes, you know, stuff with Laurie here, there, and all different places, stuff with Michael, you know, in different places, stuff with Loomis in different places that I, I, I kind of have trouble keeping track of what happens when. I don't feel it negatively affects the pace of the movie, though. No. I do feel there's a good enough pace of the movie. I do feel like we do get a sense of progression of Laurie's just descent. Yeah, but I also think the theatrical cut moves a little bit quicker. I think it's actually shorter than the director's cut. I believe it is, too. But it, it is significantly missing a lot, which we will get into. Uh, so Lori looks in the mirror, trying to reassure herself after this horrible nightmare. He's dead. He's dead. And we get the text on the screen, October 29th. In the director's cut, it's two years later. In the theatrical cut, it's one year later. I feel two years later, and, and I felt weird about this for years. I could never decide. I kind of leaned towards one year later, just because, you know, the an- the anniversary. And if there's one thing we've seen in Michael Myers is that he's big on, you know, Anniversaries. Like primary number anniversaries, you yeah. know? Ten years. Well, even though four, even though five and six, you know, it's it's uh, one. Well, yeah, you know, ten years after the first one, one year after the last one. The next one will be six years, but then 20 years, you know? Or resurrection, 23 years, if you really want to just make yourself feel bad yeah. about resurrection. Uh. But it, it, on, on further look, on looking at it now, I kind of feel like two years works a little better because we see Lori has completely transformed into a different person from from the from the smiling, happy girl with a plucky. little with plucky with a little bit of an edge to her. She is full, just like grungy, you Got know, her in tats. 
I wouldn't say covered, but she has a whole bunch of tattoos. Yeah, she's got, like, matching stars on her hands. She's got, like, she's got a, a tramp stamp on her back. Yeah, like a butterfly. She's got scars all over her, and that's one thing they definitely emphasize well was just the, the physical aftermath of her. Her hair is, like, partially in dreads. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like that loose dreading. Yeah. Kind of. Much like Rob Zombie's hair. She's got the fucking bags under her eyes. She just, she, she just looks so grungy and dingy. She has, like, her side of the bathroom and Annie's side of the bathroom, where hers is just covered in posters and shit written on the walls, and her bedroom, everything is just a fucking mess. I don't think in a year's time... Maybe that drastic. A, a drastic, especially for a 17-year-old probably still going to school. And we actually don't even find out what what happens. Does she graduate? Does she drop out? Does Annie graduate? Does Annie drop out? We, we don't really know. So I, I feel like the two the two years time is a little more realistic a time frame for her to settle into this new look and lifestyle. Right. I mean, like like speaking of like horror movie timelines, I've always had a problem with the timeline of Scream Three because it says it's like four like because during the climax of that movie it says four years I tracked down uh, Maureen Prescott. So then that was okay. It's one year from the events. This first Scream takes place. The events after that, and so then I guess another. Scream Two was another year after that, and then just like, just, like, just another year after that. But it seemed like it should be. I don't think it was another year after. I think it might have been a few years. I think it might have actually been what it was in the movie, the uh, three years, because Laurie was out of college by then. Yeah, that's why I've, I never found the timeline of like it should have been like I like six years ago. I tracked Maureen down or something like that. That's why I never really enjoyed that time explanation in Roman Bridger's um, kind of big like monologue. I always thought it was four years before the first Scream. Because I think it was like four years. I'm pretty sure you said four years ago. We'll have to rewatch that. Yeah. Because uh, I, I never got that impression. I always felt that like he made it clear that he tracked Maureen down before the events. You know, four years before the events, or several years before. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But uh, anywho, you know, I, I do feel like the two year gap now as an adult. I feel the two year gap works. But well, I was an adult when I first saw this. What the fuck am I talking about? I feel like now. The two-year gap works better than the one year. Right. And we have, in the theatrical and director's cut, the scenes start out very similar of that Lori's now living with the brackets of... After her parents have been murdered. Yes. Annie and Sheriff. And... (laughs) Annie and Lee, not Sheriff. His first name is not Sheriff. Yes. And so... Brackett has grown out his hair, his kind of like long gray hair now. He um, looks he looks like Charles Lee Ray from the first Child's Play if he had lived to old age. <laughs> oh my God, I'm dying! Oh, I'm dying! <laughs> Every- I'm gonna get you, you and Eddie. <laughs> Which he does slip into. The Chucky voice. Oh, I love when he does that. Oh, yeah. I love Brad Dorf. When I he, mean, when I think, like, the only thing missing for the Lord of the Rings is he doesn't get to go into that register. I mean, that's yeah. why I made Warm Song uh, uh, more in- uh, more enjoyable. But the scene started out, yeah, like, so they're having breakfast. Breakfast and time at the, at the breakfast, breakfast house. house. And they, they, it definitely seems like more uh, Annie and Lori are becoming more organic and Sheriff in his old ways, wanting having, like, a huge donut going to work. Takes all the coffee. They have a nice conversation about the nightmare that happened the night before, and she tries to like underplay it that they didn't hear that much, despite the fact the whole house heard her. Mm-hmm. However, in the director's cut, Annie really has had a change in this. Annie seems more like the responsible adult than just like the the daddy's little girl who babysits just to have a place to have sex with her boyfriend. She's making breakfast for everybody throughout the movie. She seems the more maternal figure in their lives like her surviving this issue made her grow up and, and, I, I, don't, I, and I wonder if it's because of like scout falling like Lori falling into this kind of personality now and like how her psychological state that has forced Annie to become 
like a mother to her. That would have been an interesting angle to explore, but unfortunately, it, you know, I feel as you said, you feel like we didn't get enough Annie. I can agree with this. The thing I can I can agree with that, but feel it doesn't need to be there is the fact that this is very much Laurie's story. Like, um, early reviews we're already getting of the new Halloween, Halloween 2018, since it has premiered at Toronto Film yeah. Festival. Yeah, yeah, uh, I believe it was today or yesterday it premiered at a film festival in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas! Ma- Texas, the great state of Texas. Texas. I'm just reminded of Born of Darkness when it's so hot and everything. Like, chili! Everybody get your hot chili! Texas! I'm reminded of... A Three Stooges sketch from the new Three Stooges when they had Curly Joe in it when they're acting as waiters. They're at a job as waiters and they get a customer and they're just fucking everything up. <laughs> and the customer starts getting pissed and he starts slapping Curly Joe around. And Mo keeps, for whatever reason, whenever Mo stands up for him, he always keeps reminding him that he's from the great state of Texas. Texas. And over and over again, he has to do the clap. Like, you know that this man is from the state of. Texas. Texas. <laughs> but it all ends in disaster like most things the Three Stooges do, unfortunately, yeah. in their sketches. But in, Daddy, you're not going to believe where I am. As we were saying, in the newer reviews of the new Halloween, some critics were a little disappointed that apparently Andy Matichek's character of Allison, uh, Lori's granddaughter, granddaughter, Allison Strode, isn't as heavily featured as Lori was in the original. And many of them feel that this is okay because it's made up for by the fact that this really is Lori's story. Mm-hmm. Lori really is the main character here. And even though there's the idea to spotlight the two, the three generations of Strode women mm-hmm. and how the daughter and granddaughter have had to suffer under their mother's overbearingness, the fact that, you know, Lori was right all along and this killer comes back to strike at them and they have to reunite, I guess, and put aside everything and come together, that – Sort of makes up for it. I, I can, I can. I mean, we'll see when the movie comes out. Right. But I, I get that point with this that you could have had more Annie, but not having more Annie is okay because this really is Lori's story. Mm-hmm. But it would have been nice to see Annie's explored a little more and see how her trauma, because that really is the one thing Rob Zombie wanted to focus on, is showing how all these characters move on from this in completely different ways. Right, and I think there would have been a nice contrast between Annie and Lori to see how they're both dealing with very similar traumas in, in their own ways. And at this point, you have to remember, Lori does not know that she is Michael Myers' sister. No, she just believes she's just on the same playing field as Annie. It's just a survivor of this massacre. As we will find out later, you know, we aren't explicitly told this, but Lori finds, does not know at this point that she's Michael Myers' sister. Right. Um, yes, she survives this trauma, even though Michael Myers, you know, I, I don't know if you could say did more to her, but she, was, she had to deal targeted. with him. She was primarily targeted more than Annie. At, but Annie still survived near death, just like Lori. In the theatrical cut, we get a, we get a more sympathetic Lori. But in the director's cut, and this is where we really differ on this. Yes. So we will both let each other speak our pieces on this. In the director's cut, Annie and Lori have a much more strained, contentious, angry relationship. They fight almost like, you know, sisters mad at each other. This breakfast scene is extended when Annie talks about just having to take things one day at a time. Lori says, one day at a time. In the theatrical cut, it cuts to, you know, whatever, the next the next scene. Yeah, it's cut to, like, voiceover from the next scene of them in the therapy session, and it's played under Lori getting into her car and heading towards the session itself. So it's right. like, it connects it. It's like, a, if you were 
in editing terms, it is a J cut, which like literally had the audio playing underneath as it goes yeah. into it. But in the director's cut, this conversation continues. When Lori says one day at a time, she starts flipping out angry, talking about her psychiatrist and how this is the same fucking shit she always says and blah, blah, blah. We get a much angrier in the direct cut Lori. We get a much more confrontational Lori. We, we get a much more deeply disturbed Lori, a much more, even as Zombie put it, bipolar Lori. Annie, unfortunately, you know, doesn't see it that same way. Annie, I think, almost views Lori as like the person. God, I'm burping so much. I drank so much soda today. Good God. Yes, you did. Annie almost sees it as like, even though I live through this person, this person won't stop fucking complaining and going on about this, you know, as if. And he even says, as if in a later scene that was in the director's cut, as if you're the only one who survive this you know so annie and laurie they fight a lot in this particular scene you know they're across the kitchen just yelling at each other and in my opinion i feel that this establishes where their relationship currently is at mm-hmm. throughout the movie the next scenes where they fight with each other they escalate by the next major one where they fight they're in each other's faces and laurie's even saying back the fuck off so you see things are progressing worse by their last scene where they fight together, Lori's screaming in her face, and he's like, what? what? What's going on? This is after Lori finds out the truth and storms out of the house leaves. I really do feel that this is a natural progression of where their relationship is at. I feel that them arguing in the beginning is a good representation of where their relationship is currently at, that they have these, you know, mini arguments, fights, nothing gets you know, really too crazy. It's just them yelling at each other. This is this is where their relationship currently is at. We haven't seen anything before and how it got that way. Maybe it started sooner. Maybe it started... Maybe this is the first one. Who knows? But this is currently where it's at, where things are at two years later. Mm. Now, I know you feel differently. I just have a problem because I feel like there should have been at least a beat in between that of it just escalating just a tad more. And I understand why I said, like, even Lori says later on, it goes from zero to 100. If we just had a moment of her revving up going to 100, or have her stop while they're yelling at each other, apologize, and realize to say, like, I don't know what came over me. I don't know what's going on with me. And just, like, you really need to get to go to therapy. You really need to see Margot Kidder today. And then, then we go into that one. And so... It would just – so, like, it would I would buy it a little bit more because I feel like it, it revs up a little too fast. And it, I, I think it, it slightly undercuts that face-to-face argument for me personally later on. And so – because we've already seen each other yell at each other. Despite all, the, like, the, they have, like, their sisterly bond in between, like, in the few nice moments, which we'll get into it later on. But I feel like it's like you're hitting the same beat twice for me. And so that's why I find it a little bit not as effective, but fair enough. Yeah, I mean, if if, if you just like say like like I have a oh, okay, my bad. I'm sorry. Because, I didn't mean to go that far. Yeah, because I've done that. Because I get angry at somebody and I'll scream at somebody, but then I will immediately calm down and I'm like, okay, my bad. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to get that angry. It's not as like I'm not as bad as like uh, I'm Sandler and Happy Gilmore. Like, good, I saw those finger paints. They suck. suck. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. It's not like <laughs> oh, they get the hell out of my life. Beat it. Who needs you? 
I just get scared sometimes. I don't want to lose you. Uh, I don't want. It doesn't be that. Like, like a parent. I want to kiss you all over. And then a. Elderly Chinese woman comes to live with you. And ask you if you want breakfast. Hey, you, you don't want breakfast? Well, wearing only your Rangers jersey. Okay. Oh, no. Bruce jersey. Was it? All yeah. right. Well, I I understand. And, I mean, I, I do feel it does work. I think at that point it goes to saying, like, the, you brought up the critics of her just screaming the entire time. I think, like, it, it gives credence to that criticism. I do feel it does work because the thing is, Andy is, uh, Lori's not really complaining about Annie. She's, like, just frustrated with her psychiatrist and it's boiling over and Annie's kind of just there to say, you know, fucking get over it. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I feel the basis of it is. I mean, it's okay. See folks, people on the, we're people on the internet that have differing opinions and we're getting along with each other. And we still respect each other. And we're accepting those opinions. It can happen. I think it can happen. It's only because we're in physical proximity to each other and we could physically do damage to each other? Maybe. So when I go home, I'm going to slur- slander you all over the internet, and then the next time I see you, we'll see what happens. Exactly. It's going to be a brawl, folks. We're going <laughs> to record it. Oh, I look forward it's to it. It's on. And so... Fight night. <laughs> Trick or treat. Uh, <laughs> speaking of treats, uh, we have Margot Kidder in this movie. Yes. Uh, the late, great Margot Kidder. Oh, it's so sad. I grew it's, up on Margot Kidder, man, watching it, the Superman movies. Exactly. And the fact that and she is she brings so much warmth and compassion to the like the few moments that she has in this movie. And the fact that like she had a well documented issues with mental illness, that's why I think it's so nice to see her in this role. That's why I also feel, somebody. That's why I also feel it's so much sadder to see the her director's cut scenes, you know, not always not all of them there. No. Or at the length that they're at. Right. Because Lori, Lori in the director's cut feels more that her therapist is just, you know, looking down on her, telling her the same shit over and over again. Mm. And her therapy session in both cuts is very, very different from one another. Mm. In the director's cut, she's explaining how she's fighting with Annie all the time. And she says that when she, when she looks at Annie, she just feels this horrible sorrow, like it's all my fault that this happened to her. And it gets her so angry that she just wants to, and then she cuts herself off saying, you'd put me away if I told you what I'm thinking. She said, no, finish the thought. I want to hear it. But she clams up. She doesn't. She clams up. And I, I understood full well what she was thinking. Like when oh, you, yeah, she wanted to kill her. When you're so fucked. Yeah. And, and um, to reference even Batman Begins, I, th- I think it was Batman Begins when, when in the beginning when Ra's al Ghul is training him before we know he's Ra's al Ghul, when he says that. When you lose the person you love, how you you almost wish they never existed to spare yourself the pain. Mm. How Laurie is almost feeling to a point where it's like she has these feelings, like she, like these horrible impulsive thoughts, like she wants to kill Annie just to get so she'll never have to look at her again and see that pain. Yeah, because she feels a sense of guilt. She sends a horrible felt sense of guilt. I feel that this is actually a per, an amazing setup for something that happens later that I know was was criticized and a lot of people are like, "What the fuck is that?" Mm. Um. However, in the theatrical cut, we are we're given a more sympathetic glory where she does not describe this, and instead, at the end of what would have been the director's cut scene of her therapy, it continues on where she begins crying, and her therapist asks her, you know, what have you been thinking about, and she just says how she misses her parents. That's a beat that I I really miss. That's a beat that you needed, and I do feel I feel like you needed the fight with Annie to come right before the the. 
I miss my parents just to see how much Lori struggles and how her fucking feelings can just turn on a fucking dime like that. Mm-hmm. How she just struggles with this. And, and honest to God, it, 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 they do another example of that later in another therapy session, which is unfortunately cut out of the theatrical cut. But the scene that's intercut with it is left in in full, actually. Yeah. What the fuck comes next? Oh, <laughs> uh, we're introduced to New Loomis. I am so just like off my rocker with this. With no, this, no, no, uh, it's fine because we're introduced to Loomis on his book tour, ready to do a huge Q and A session for yes, on Lo- his new book. It's called "The Devil Walks Amongst Us," based upon the events of the previous Halloween movie. Yes, Loomis is back in Haddonfield to promote his new book, which is coming out on Halloween. Uh, it's a new very Loom- tasteful. Yes, oh boy. Well, it's a new Loomis this time around. Um, Not in the sense that it's still Malcolm McDowell. Yes, Malcolm but it's McDowell a new comes back. Coat of paint. Black paint. A, I wouldn't know why you would anyone would paint their house in fucking baby shit green, but <laughs> this is a, this is a new Loomis that fucking is universally despised. I don't know a single person besides Rob Zombie himself who thought that this was a good idea. Loomis is now being portrayed as a greedy, money grubbing. You know, piece of shit that is aping off of the traumatic events of of the previous movie. Okay, this thought just dawned on me: Is his this him riffing on the dimension on dimension? I don't think so, because I do have here in the development section of my notes. Zombie categorized Loomis in the sequel of more of a sellout who exploits these memories of those who were killed by Michael in the first film. He explained that he tried to channel Vincent Bugliosi, the lawyer who prosecuted Charles Manson, then wrote a book about it. Yeah, held the skelter. Yeah. Seeming he wanted Loomis to be more ridiculous this time. Here's the thing, though. In the original, there, there, at least to the best of my knowledge, was no indication that they were going to go in this direction with Loomis. In any trailer, mm-hmm. in any form of media, nothing. In the trailer <clears throat> and corresponding TV spots, even up to the day of the film's release and even after it, there was a small snippet in the trailer of Loomis. It looked like he was like talking to a, a group of people that wouldn't listen in typical Loomis fashion where he uses the line, Michael is more evolved. Hmm. We see you know, uh, a shot from the scene it was in, but that scene was cut out of the film and is not even in the deleted scenes. No. It, it probably ended up in a work print version of the that, movie that, that never got leaked. That soundbite that sound was used in, in TV spots, radio spots, even after the movie came out, and even that line is not even in the fucking movie. No. Now, judging by what we watched here, it kind of looked like it was it was in Loomis's actual book signing later in the movie based on... The, the large windows of the setting and, you know, the shirt and tie he was wearing. But it was it was very quick. And I almost think to myself, because every other shot of Loomis in the trailer show, was in the movie or deleted scenes, I almost think, was there a version of this film where Loomis's character wasn't this? Where, like, yeah, maybe he's putting out a book or whatever, but maybe he's doing it more, you know, to warn people that this danger's still out there like Loomis would. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll ever know. Because it would be a logical sense. If, let's go with that idea for a second. To spread the ideas that Michael Myers is still out there and the dangers of a person like Michael could be, best way to get his way out is a widely read book. Yes. But, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know. I don't know if this will ever be released. You know, 
Who knows? Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever get answers. And because like he in this version, he is such a greedy individual, and like his and seems, a dick and a huge dick to anybody, especially his assistant, his publicist, um, who's like his. Jiminy Cricket at this movie, like, it's like supposed to be his conscious, like speaking in a lot of the audience, like well, you're going too far to stop doing this. He's like, I don't give a shit. Yes, his agent, as the movie goes on, becomes increasingly, you know, uncomfortable with what he's doing and feels like he's exploiting memories. Right. Now, the interesting thing is, <clears throat> as I have come to think about, you could probably make this, you could probably make this work. If you were to completely switch those two characters' personalities completely. Right. If that, the publicist, agent, who, whatever. Whoever it is. She's the one influencing Loomis to be more ruthless and like, make, she's trying bathe to make her in the blood of these memories. She's trying to make her client more money, which is what a good agent does, but they don't always do it ethically. I have drawn the comparison of the character of B.B. Glazer from Frasier. Right. Frazier's on-again, off-again, you know, reoccur- reoccurring character is Frazier's on-again, off-again agent. And every time she comes back, everyone just looks like, oh, God, it's this person again. She always is the agent that makes that tries to make Frazier more money, tries to seduce him, in, even even sexually in a few episodes. Yes. But tries to seduce him with this promise of bigger fame and more money. And, and, and it always goes in a way that, you know, Frazier is not comfortable with and ultimately declines. There was even one episode... For God's sakes, I can't deal with this. There was even one episode when he goes to meet her at a, at a hotel or whatever mm-hmm. to discuss this, and he knows he's uncomfortable. He knows this is awful. Everyone accuses her of being like the devil herself. Mm-hmm. He goes to the hotel room. You know, she's, she's in another room, like, changing. She has some, like, Wagner-esque music on in the background. Mm-hmm. When she opens the door, there's, like, steam coming out from the shower and a red light behind her. And she's dressed in, like, this, like, red and black, like, lingerie-type thing. Like, nighty right. thing with this evil smile on her face. <laughs> and I think it was right after he says, everyone believes you to be, like, the devil. And it's, Wash, it's fucking smash his, cut. And, it's fucking his, and you see the look on his face like he's mortified. <laughs> you could have played it off like this where you had an agent exploiting Loomis's vulnerability during this tragedy saying like oh well michael myers you know look at everything he's put you through throughout your whole time with him and then you know he does this he kills so many people why shouldn't you why shouldn't you profit off of off of this guy a better example is scream Four, city prescott's agent there you go oh the the lovely allison brie yes. i love her so much and like because she was definitely more ruthless in the fact that like wanted to be more Gaudy in the way of promoting it, and Sydney's like the kind of like the heart, like I don't want to go that far. Like this would yeah. be a good thing. It's not supposed to be revel in what has happened to but, me. And you could have it where Loomis has been, you know, this experience has traumatized him so much to where he'll listen. Like that's how he justifies it. He's listening to this person who's clearly getting him results. You know, yeah. she's getting him another book. She's like more of a caretaker at this point rather than just an agent. But she's leading him down the wrong path, and she's 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 viewing exploitation of other people's misery and even his own. You know, as a, like controversy creates cash. You know, yeah. you could have done that instead. It, it was it just have been as so as simple as just flipping these two characters, right? Just trading out their roles in the movie. And so, after- and you could have had a more sympathetic Loomis. Sorry, cut you off. Yeah. More sympathetic Loomis that allows these things to happen. And by the and you wouldn't have had to change anything else because then by the end of the movie, when all shit goes to when everything goes to shit. And it's totally Loomis's fault. Loomis will come to the realization that he let this happen, that he should have taken a stand. Yes. And you, the audience, because when Loomis finally does decide to take a stand, it's there's what 
less than 10 minutes left in the movie, and it's almost a too little, too late feeling oh, yeah. when Loomis realizes what he is and what he's become. There should have been that all along, and you could have done it if you played it this way, and I feel the audience wouldn't have turned on the character of Loomis or turned on Rob Zombie mm. so quickly. And it's a weird thing because we have a huge continuity error in the scene. Yes, when, when he's giving his speech before, you know, his, for, for his book, it begins with uh, footage inside Smith's Grove of Michael when he was a boy when Loomis was informing him that his mother has committed suicide. Michael, you know, who's standing there staring blankly at the camera, you know, blank, pale, emotionless face, saying, she'll be back. At this point in the first Halloween movie, Michael would no longer not wear a mask at this point. Yeah. He, he had pretty much fallen into becoming the shape. And at this point, that was when he stopped talking. That was, He never uttered, uttered another word again. No. Before his mother committed suicide, the stabbing of the nurse was like the final thing that put his mother over the edge and killed her. Mm. And at that point, Michael had already pretty much become the shape. Yes. So in this, it's like, did Rob not watch the movie again? Did he not care? Was he just frustrated? I think he doesn't care. I liked, I, I would have liked better what was in one of the deleted scenes. Because that actually explained Michael's motivation completely. In the deleted scenes, we have a different video. It's like security cam footage of Michael and his mother during one of her visits and Michael saying how, you know, he wants to get back. He wants he, he wants everything to go back the way it was. And she says, you she, you can't, you know, you, you kind of broke everything. And he says, I'll fix it. You watch. I'll make everything right again. I'll, I'll, I'll reunite us. I'll bring us all back together. Which is his which is his motivation for this movie. As we will get to in the next scene. But yeah. Loomis's whole Q&A session does not go very well. It starts out cordial in the director's cut and immediately goes awry afterwards. Because Where people are asking him all these tough questions about Michael Myers. Saying, yeah, and the audience would be questioning at this point. And apparently Michael's body was, you know, never disappeared. actually found. It, it, uh, his body disappeared. I, I, you know, so I guess that that's where we come up with the whole after the <clears throat> van crashes, he's walking down the street. That's where it goes from the flashback of the first movie ending to the dream sequence happening. Yeah, I presume he just walked off. He he became a cane in kung fu and decided to walk the earth. Yeah. So as Loomis is saying, Michael Myers is fucking dead. Do I have to spell it? D E A D. We are in a cut with Michael. Like a homeless vagrant walking through fields. Yeah. Carrying like a fucking rucksack on his back. Mm -hmm. Michael's look is now updated a little more. As we said earlier, he's yeah, now this... wearing like a big jacket and a hoodie. Always carry, wears the hood. You know, he's always trying to like hide himself. So after this. It... Yeah, he's got his Jeremiah Johnson look that he's got going on right now. I mean, we've not seen this. We've not. I don't think we've seen Tyler Mayne and Zach Wilde in the same room together. Yeah, he Michael has in the two years has this gigantic Zach Wilde esque beard. He looks more like Zach Wilde than ever. He looks less like Tyler Mayne and more like Zach Wilde for some reason. Yes, but Michael travels into a barn where he sees this vision of his mother. And this is at my point, like, I'm like, like, and the th even in the theater, I'm like, oh, boy, we're really going here. All right. Let's All see right. where the trips. Let's see where this is going. Challenge accepted, sir. I, 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 this is the point where I begin trying to, trying to explain this. Call me an apologist if you fucking want to. I don't care. Michael is communicating with his mother. His mother's telling him it's now time to reunite, to bring us all back. But when Michael in his mind communicates, he is seeing his child self. So we have. Tyler Maine's adult Michael standing there. In front of him is child Michael, who does all the talking. 
Michael sees himself still as this 10-year-old boy because that was the last time he truly was Michael Myers, the, 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 the human communicating with his mother. And we now discover, in, as, from what I've seen, this whole white horse ghost mother thing is a manifestation of his desire to, fi- to right what was wrong, to fix his family, to reunite them. That I feel, whether Rob Zombie you know, thought of this before and was going to save it for a sequel or retconned it, it works for me. I can fully see <clears throat> in the first one, Michael seeing these visions of his mother communicating, mm-hmm. saying, it's time to go reunite us. And by the end of the film, when we see, you, get, you really understand what she means by when she says, now take us home. I firmly believe that Michael's whole motive the whole time, even throughout the first one, was to find his long lost sister and reunite them with his, with his mother in death. Michael was going to find Laurie and have himself a big fucking murder-suicide to fix the wrong he did by, you know, tearing his family apart. Mm. I guess his sister Judith isn't included in this because I guess he's – I guess he kind of feels like she – her behavior and how she was kind of usurped their family. Mm. Like she just didn't give a shit to stick together. No, he, he- – Totally loved his mom. His it mom was that only. whole Oedipal thing yes. where, like, his sister, his older sister was almost a threat and because of who she became. And his baby sister never had a chance to be that, no. you know. He loved his baby sister so much. So I really believe that the, the ghost mother, white horse thing is where Michael's motive throughout this whole two-part story lies. That he mentally wants to right this wrong. The, the person that was Michael Myers essentially never age past 10 years old and whenever like almost like Norman Bates whenever the threat of something came whenever the threat of reality came he would transform into the shape just like Norman Bates would transform into mother he would put the mask on and in all these movies in both of these movies except for another continuity breaking moment later Michael never kills unless he's wearing a mask Mm. he's cut off from everybody we've had well talk about in a scene later he's even assaulted by people but then he puts on the mask to strike because the shape sees that michael has been threatened and is going to take care of this threat much like mother takes care of norman when he's threatened right that's what i believe and that's what i believe michael's motive is is to reunite his family in death and he will and he will do it via the split personality disassociative disorder personality of the shape yeah and I can totally see that. I, I just feel like... Too hokey? I think just having seen the young Michael standing in front of tall Michael and speaking for him, it just so, it seems so... F- but that's, it's like Neo in the Matrix, where Neo without holes in the back of his head with his head shaved. Like, this is how you see yourself. This is your mind's eye, how it, how it sees itself when you're in the Matrix. Right. This is how Michael sees himself. He never saw himself past that 10-year-old boy. I get that. It, it just seems like it's just... It's just, the, like, the image of them together, for some reason, like, it is, it's like a bridge too far for me. Like, but I, I can get that. That makes sense. That's plausible. If that's, like, if that was his intention, do you know what? I'll say that's well thought out. I don't believe it's intention, his intention, but I believe when he sat there and thought about it, this is what became, and it works. Right. It, at least for me, it really works. And I know, you know, audiences a lot of times need things. I'm kind of good at this, at picking out subplot details. Like, I remember one of the complaints when we saw Man of Steel was too many subplots that made no sense. Everything made sense to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, except get... for the total annihilation of Metropolis, but that's another argument. Right. Um, <laughs> that we've had for a long time. <laughs> and so, but we're still friends. See, folks, you can have differing opinions. Oh yeah, and be on the internet and still be like best friends. Exactly. You got and my best friends. <laughs> the thick and thin, we always stay together. But speaking of best friends, before we go on with Michael, we do introduce to uh, the new gal pal of. Uh, Lori and her two co-workers, Maya and I forget the other girl's name. Uh, Harley. Harley. Maya Rockwell and Harley David. So uh, Rob Zombie, he, yep, his, his creativity is just oozing. Oozing. Might as well have called her Harley Quinn at that point. I uh, might as fucking well. I think he did worse to this poor actress. But uh, anywho, okay. Lori is working at this like independently owned hippie coffee shop that sells records and has stuff. Uh, it's run by another yet another cultural stereotype. This hi- The hippie. This, Flower Child, uh, Uncle, what was it, the fuck was it? Uncle Meat? Uncle, Uncle Meat's, Meat's Java Shop. Java Shop bunghole or whatever the yeah. fuck. But only, who's always complaining about young people and always complaining about corporations and always complaining about the military industrial complex and always complaining about all this fucking shit. Right on there, sister. Yes. So we have uh, Maya, played by actress Bria Grant, and Harley. Maya's more like the the. Grounded, down-to-earth, you know, nice girl with the little edge. Kind of like what Lori was. Mm-hmm. Harley <laughs> Harley is the unabashed, uh, unabashed, unembarrassed slut of the group. Right. And she is comfortable with her sexuality, and she, she likes to have fun. As she strolls in when Uncle Meat goes to the back, she says, Oh, do I have to show him my tits again? She stands, Oh, Meat, you want to see my lady lumps? So we know that Rob Zombie was listening to the Black Eyed Peas that week. In the yeah. movie that was supposed to take place in 1997. And so... Harley David is played by actress Angela Trimber. Um, unfortunately, just recently, as of July, Angela Trimber was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very very horrible, very tragic. There was a uh, GoFundMe page set up for her. Mm-hmm. Um, stand up for Angela. They had a $100,000 goal. As of right now, it stands... At the time of this podcast, uh, September... Was it twenty second, twenty eighteen? It's yep. at one hundred and thirteen thousand six hundred eight dollars. So, go everybody mm-hmm. for donating. You could actually still donate to this. It's at GoFundMe dot com slash step dash up dash four f o r dash Angela. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a little uh, that little was it hyphen yeah or dash between each word, but step, step up for Angela. So yeah, go to GoFundMe, step up for Angela. You should be able to find it like that. Yep, and I mean she's an awesome actress. From what I hear she's an awesome person, mm-hmm. so uh, I feel like she deserves better than the character. Yeah, that's a, that's the problem. slut of Harley David. But I, uh, he, Rob Zombie just gets women, doesn't he? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he gets them like Harvey gets them. Um, All right, maybe not like that. That was harsh. That uh, was pretty harsh. But and yeah. so yeah, they, they like just sit around and like. Get ready for a the Halloween that's coming up. They listen to MC5's "Kick Out the Jams" for like a, a few seconds, which like is a big cock tease. Now, was this in the deleted scenes or in the director's cut where Lori goes to take out the garbage? Deleted scenes. It was deleted scene. All right, it was delete. This was one of like the six and a half deleted scenes we wish stayed in. Lori goes yes. to take out the garbage, and she's looking kind of into the town square where they're setting up for Halloween festivities and whatnot. Somebody's setting up a decoration. Of like a woman being hanged from a tree. Of like a, of like a stuffed person, you know, being hanged from like a little fucking gallow thing. And from Lori's perspective, all the way in the other side, so- like far away from this, it looks like there's an actual person being hanged. And as it cuts back to her, and she's like traumatized and freaked out. And it cuts back; it's Michael Myers hanging her. 
it is the scariest moment of the entire movie for me. Because it's so fucking out of nowhere. And it's broad daylight, people- nobody's noticing, no music, it's just... <coughs> her struggling and like the noose tightening. Yes, and this shot was in the trailer, but left out of both versions of the film. This is tightening. She's freaking out. Maya steps out and she's like, "Oh my god, he's he's, he's hanging me!" Like freaking out. They look back and it's just like it's like paper mache dolls. You know, the one holding the rope for the other one being yeah. hung. You know, it's like like these dummies. You know. And it's just, it's fucked up. It, that should have stayed in there, That's, like, that's, that, like, that like was I, I was, like, really, nuts. like, you you missed a really big opportunity by cutting that out. That legitimately should have freaking, you know, stayed there. Yeah. And so, back to Michael. He is making his trek uh, across the countryside, back to Haddonfield. He's going across somebody's farm where, um... Rednecks, two, of course. Uh, gotta, be, gotta be fucking rednecks. And their female companion... Come up to the, come up to Michael, stop him. They get out. The two men, one arm, one played by the actor who played Detective Flash in Batman Begins. Michael didn't like falafel, apparently. Uh, yeah, no, he's carrying a crowbar, and his friend's carrying a baseball bat. Tire iron. Oh, tire iron. Excuse me. It was and dark. They, they both uh, accost him. Yeah, and pretend they're the LAPD and beat him down. Um, and <laughs> well, I tell him, tell, tell you about getting off my fucking farmland. You know, they beat him down. Michael, he just takes the beating. Uh, and the, the woman comes out and she says, like, well, you shouldn't have done that. And he's, she's very apologetic to uh, yep. to Michael. And Michael, as they're going back to the truck, we see him sit up and he puts on that mask. This is going back to my point. Michael has been threatened by these guys, so the shape is going to protect him. Yes. And, of course, so there's for, Rob Zombie, I didn't notice this in the theatrical cut. I know I didn't notice this in the director's cut, but I noticed it in the theatrical cut. And I, the more I pointed out, the more it was fucking bugging me. Like, well, those things you can't see. In the first movie, he had shaky cam out the ass. Which like, he does have to a degree There's some here. shaky cam, but it, it has been cut down heavily. Now in this one, slow motion. Just scenes of just where everything slows down. I, and then I, stops slowing. I, I think the reason why shaky cam is not as noticeable here is the fact that it was in scope in the first one. So you have a limited amount of... Of area to to be seen, the fact that it's one eight five and fills up the sixteen by nine screen a lot more stays in frame, so it doesn't seem as like nothing. You're not losing as much as it's like jars up and down. However, you're right in the fact that so much is slow motion. I would I, and backlit I, by like white light. I jokingly said I think every other scene is a slow motion scene, and literally. I start. I start like, like, holy shit! It is every other scene. Like, like he just watch a bunch, watch a John Woo and Zack Snyder movies before he did this. Especially like, once the ending kicks in. Like, yeah. Once the final act kicks in, there's a fucking slow motion shot every fucking scene or every other scene. Yeah. It's fucking absurd. So Michael, well, the shape now kills these two men with his giant hunting knife. knife. I'm sure he stole that off someone's land. He needed to get a fucking knife, st- knives and stabbing weapons. <laughs> Those are his forte. So I'm sure he saw it, found this, saw it was nice and big. I mean, we've seen Michael use other shit. But it's like 16 inches knives. long with a handle included. It is gigantic. Yeah, you could do some fucking damage with that. I'd want to arm myself with that if I was being accosted by rednecks. Yes, and he does use it on them. He uses it on them. And he kills the girl, even though the girl was sympathetic fucking he kills her you know and this is one of his more uncreative kills he just drags her out it's shot very wide and far away and just stab stab a few times drag stab a few times drag and it's always like drag 
Ruff, ruff, drags the body. Which is ruff, more ruff, unique. That's all ruff. shot in one wide shot, and he looks very small in the frame. And uh, the one creative kill in this moment is here is that in, in front of this uh, truck where all these three people were driving. Deer antlers. Deer antlers. He, he impales Detective Flass on the antlers. But in the back of the truck, in the bed, there is a dog in a cage barking because dogs sense evil. And Michael's a personification of evil. He goes up to the dog. And he drags the knife across the cage at first. The cage bar is like tick, 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 making that tick, 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 and the dog starts whining because he knows he's in trouble. We cut back to the, to the I was almost about to say the Strode house. We cut yeah, back to I heard that. the bracket house where they have gotten a pizza, and it is half pineapple, half like meat lovers. And Lori and Annie start arguing about, oh, you're going to get meat on my food. We're vegetarians, vegans, whatever. Right. And then, you know, stereotypic characters, number two or whatever, we have these vegans. Well, you, that why didn't you get the whole wheat uh, crust? Why didn't you get the whole wheat crust? Because if they're not eating vegetables, they have to go full-on fucking paleo, I guess. Mm. Or, if or, you want to be vegan, cool. If you do, cool. It's just I, We're just explaining how fucking one-dimensional Rob Zombie can make characters sometimes. Yes. And then there's Sheriff Brackett who says, man, was meant to eat meat. Whatever. And he's just playing with his food and everything and making Lori laugh, and he's disgusted by it. And who the, who the hell does he reference? Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin. And Andy reacts, who? And it's, of course, yet another example of, you never you, heard you of you Lee Marvin? You never heard of Lee Marvin? You never heard of Lee Marvin? You got to do Jack Nielsen in order to get the Brad Dourif. I realize that now. <laughs> and as, as uh, Sheriff Brackett is common, comically eating this meat lover's pizza, it's intercut with Michael, you know, Filleting this dog. Eating the dog, chopping it, it up and eating it. Which we didn't really need to see, but it was no. there. That would have been more effective if we didn't see it. Like, we just hear the, we see the cut, and then we just hear, like, the munching sounds, and you're like, oh, God, what is he doing? And then this is when the psychic link between... Well, Lori, Lori, at first, as she's watching this, just, you know, starts to feel sick, runs upstairs and throws up. And he follows behind, you know, and starts taking care of her while she's throwing up, almost like a drunk person. Takes, You know, you take care of a drunk person. And Lori kind of just, like, falls into Annie's lap, like, being killed by her. It's, like, it's one of the, the, the nice moments between them, you know, what, whatever's still left of that. Showing that even in the director's cut between their arguments, there's still a love for the two of them like sisters. Right. And, then, and there is actually in the deleted scenes, there is a extended beat for this where she goes like she gives her a rag to wipe her mouth and Lori just kind of throws it on her own head and she kind of leans into Annie and he's like oh god your, your breath and she just holds her anyway but then she goes to throw up again and the fucking toilet lid accidentally falls over and clocks her on the back of the and then, head and then, then she throws up and she's done and Annie goes to flush oh, it and she says you clog it the shitter you clog it the shitter like it's all like that that That's in the stayed. moment of levity and a nice moment. That could have stayed in. That was nice. Yeah. But cut back to Michael, who's now, I guess, seemingly taking a break for the night. He still has his shape mask on, look at, looking at the moon, and he starts having a vision when inside his head. you wish upon a star. Yes. He starts having a vision inside of his head of his mother visiting him at the sanitarium, and now in a black dress. And veil. And veil. Like, you know, she's dead. And it's young Michael, Chase Vanek. Sitting next to adult Michael with the orange, like, pumpkin-ass pumpkin mask. mask in his, you know, robe. Yeah, it's so... Kind of him just playing over everything, I guess, that's gone on in his own mind, saying how, you know, we, we can't be reunited until you fix things, I believe is the dialogue. Yeah, and then we cut to the music video set. It transitions into this bizarre set. I guess this is what goes on in Michael's brain. Now, I, 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 I could totally see people thinking, what the what the fuck is this? Which what was my reaction when I first saw it. It cuts to this, like, large Last skeletal... kind of thing. This, like, large skeletal, I guess, effigy with the shape mask over it. Mm -hmm. 
almost like this is what Michael, you know, this is like the the god of death that Michael worships, you know, like the, like this represents death. The the it's under the guise of the shape, the shape protects me, so I almost like worship. It's kind of like the Wicker Man, almost the the mm. big Wicker Man that everyone prays to or whatever. Right. And behind them, on like a large dining table, is these group of people dressed up in a combination of like pumpkin jack-o'-lantern Halloween costumes and like playing card king queens. It's very like I made the joke. It's very Return of Oz like in its design of like costumes. I mean, like something you can see like Frugger walking into the set and being freaked out by these things. They're being they're being served dinner, you know, poured wine in their goblets. It's very royal looking, but it has this desaturated, almost black and white feel to it. Yeah, like, like 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 you're inside a fucked up snow globe. Yeah, because isn't there like it snow? It is flood? snowing at the time, and there's Lori laying on a table. Yeah, and it's like she's like. Uh, um, Incapacitated at this moment, and they're all kind of observing her and everything. And all these characters, these characters are actually they're sitting around this table are actually given names. I hear have here because uh, the actors that played them were also a couple of different deputies later on, okay. doubled in roles. We have the Earl of Pumpkin, King Jack, Lord Treat, and Bishop Trick. Now, something like this, I could understand if you made a remake that establishes Michael Myers, the boy. Halloween is his favorite holiday. He's obsessed with everything Halloween, like a fucking modern thirty-year-old is. Yeah. I love Halloween in the fall, every pumpkin spice, and the air is crisp, and everything. What the fuck are you looking at? Air is not crisp. <laughs> air is not crisp. Oh, Potato chips are crisp. <laughs> Whenever I hear someone say the air is crisp, you know what I want to say? You know what else is crisp? The sound of your fucking neck being snapped. Wow. Because it's gotten so absurd. It's upset, like, like almost like it's a fucking trend, the fall. Loving the fall. I like the fall. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy all four seasons. Oh, and then in my hoodies, you know, fucking Trayvon Martin loved his fucking hoodie. Whoa. You know that guy? Poor kid. That poor Whoa. kid. Damn. That poor kid. Yeah, poor kid is right, but shit. And it's like, I, I don't get the obsessions with hoodies. You know what I fucking like? I like. Well, I used to love the summer before fucking global warming ruined it for me. <laughs> because You know what I love the summer? Because I love me some beautiful women. Just wet, looking gorgeous all day. It's like, see, like, oh, yeah. I love going to the beach. I love them bikinis. I love going in the water. I love swimming. I love the outdoors. I'm a summertime person. Yes. At least before global warming fucking ruined it for us. Right. Because this summer, this summer I really got fucking fed up with the heat. Mm. We had a, we had a fucking horrifically hot summer mm -hmm. this summer. Last year was bad. This year was worse. It's probably just going to get worse from here. Yeah, global warming's not... Climate change is not Yeah, I, I feel such a... I feel such a freedom in the summer. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't feel constricted. I feel like, like when the weather gets colder, when the weather turns, it's like, ugh, I go outside. God, it's fucking cold. Like, I hate the fucking cold. Mm -hmm. But ironically, I would rather freeze to death than burn to death. It's weird. I don't okay. know why. Probably because when you freeze to death, everything slows down. Eventually, you stop, you know, you stop shivering, you stop feeling things. Burning to death, it's like, no shit, Dick Tracy, but every, everything's on fire, you know? Yes. And so... The, the We're seeing this in Michael's head. Like, I, as I was saying, I felt like this would have worked so much more if we really... If it was established. Because if I were doing a Halloween remake, and I think I've said this before, I would have it where Michael is this kid who just loves Halloween. Halloween is his favorite holiday. Maybe he was doodling these characters to begin with. He was with. doodling these characters, you know? Like, he... Like, oh, look, this royal family, you know, here's King 
King Jackoff or whatever. Yeah, Bish- yeah, yeah, yeah. Bishop Dinglehopper, whatever exactly. the fuck it is. And, so- and he's, as a kid who loves playing, you know, pranks and, and tricks on people, some some that like, you know, people get fucking mad at him over, but he just thinks it's hysterical, which would go with, you know, how Michael sets up his kills. Yeah. But and- there's none of that. So this just comes off as fucking bizarre. Mm-hmm. This comes off as bizarre, comes off out of nowhere. But I kind of get it. I kind of get it. So gotcha. as his mom is saying, you know, oh, you have to reunite us. Lori on the table is all of a sudden just grabbed by hands under the table and starts screaming her head off. And then Lori in real life wakes up for right. another nightmare, implying that there is some kind of mental connection. I'm not going to use the phrase psychic link. I think that's I think that's a little more. Uh, I think it's a little more specific and extreme of a word, but there is a mental connection between the two. OK, going back to our mental illness being hereditary argument that mm-hmm. Lori's mental illness that sh- that is part of her bloodline is, is being now, exacerbated by michael's it's not it's now manifesting because of the event she's gone through because of her brother mm-hmm. it's manifesting in the same way it did michael's she's now you know sharing his dreams his hallucinations I, I, and the thing is people complain about this fucking shit especially later when it gets to the point you know jumping ahead just for a, for a moment when Lori starts seeing the same visions of of her mother and young michael at the exact same time Michael's seeing them. Yeah, and then she has a vision later on. We'll jump to this right now because we're talking about it. Um, where it's Lori's awake and has a vision of her slaughtering um, Annie at one point. And she gets worse, yeah. Well, she wasn't really awake. She 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 just sat down for a minute. She was, you know, filling up the bathtub. She just mm-hmm. sat down for a minute, put her, put her head in her hand, and I guess kind of dozed off mm-hmm. and then has a dream like that, but... The f- the full on later by the thir- by the final act of the movie she's seeing the ho- exact same hallucinations of young Michael and and uh, Deborah Myers as Michael is. Mm. I feel like it's no more far fetched than fucking Jamie Lloyd's psychic link in five. Yeah, if you want to get silly, you could get sillier than this. You know, we've yes. already gotten sillier than this. Want to get nuts? Let's, Let's get, get nuts. nuts. Did you ever see that funny hysterical fucking meme of? It was that production still of, like, Batman next to the Joker, like that behind-the-scenes still. Yeah. And he says, you want to get nuts? And then below it, it's that same one, except them in an actual, like, candy and nut store holding <laughs> up scoopers. Yeah. Says, Let's get nuts. <laughs> so they're literally getting nuts together. Um, it was pretty funny. Yeah. And then, like... That's she- only second to my favorite of these two people washing dishes, looking at the camera, and it's Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. It's, Luke, we're going to have company. company. <laughs> uh, that, that, that always pops up around Thanksgiving, which I always really dig. Um, yeah, so these other visions of, like, Laurie, like, reenacting the scenes from the first Halloween where young Michael's in the clown mask and killing people, where this time Laurie's in this clown costume, Annie's tied up, she slits her throat. We see other visions of her going through um, a field that's in a point of view at, like, at dawn and then it's like her and andy like cross cut and with strobe light effects as as she's screaming obscenities upon obscenities in the camera as she's in her real life that she's having like this kind of seizure an epileptic episode because of it yeah like Lori, when she has this dream later on and to tell you the truth i can't remember what the fuck happens in between these i don't know if that's a bad thing no it's um it's loomis in front of the myers house oh yes well yes at one point loomis in his book tour you know does he, he's gets featured on the news in front of the Myers house. This is where we really get to see the new Myers house. Yeah. Doing that. For a minute there, I I didn't think it was the Myers house when I first saw him. I'm like, oh, that's supposed to be the Myers house. And his publicist is saying, you know, isn't this in bad taste or whatever? And Loomis, of course, since this new character, we want to make him as hateable as possible to relate to him, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
And he tells her, if I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. It's like, oh, that, 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 that's good. You know, that's really good. But yes. Which I think I wrote into one of my shorts once. Oh, great. <laughs> but yes, in, in the scene where Lori, at the end of the day, looks like she's had a long day because she's not sleeping well at all. Mm. She goes to, you know, draw herself a bath. And as the bathtub's filling up, she just sits on the toilet, just kind of puts her hand on her head and just <sighs> sighs. Mm. And then it cuts to what looks like the murder of the stepfather, Ronnie, from the first one when Michael murdered him. Mm. But it's actually Annie being duct taped to the recliner. And when the mask is pulled off for that brief moment, like happened the first one, it's actually Laurie. So we, we couldn't believe that Laurie dozed off. And she's now dreaming. She's actually having a dream of Michael's, you know, of, of that the, the night in 1978, mm. as this continuity has it. Right. When he committed his first murders as a kid. And when she slits the throat, she just it just starts doing this bright flashing music video style music video esque camera in the face of Lori and Annie. Annie's you know Lori then Annie cutting back and forth between Annie's like bleeding, screaming for her life. Lori has like this like Alice Cooper makeup on, going "Die you fucking bitch! Die you fucking bitch!" She's going to get cross, scratch into her forehead. She's a bleed from the eyes. You fucking bitch! Die! And but Lori in real life is like having a seizure while this is happening. Like, this is how much it's going crazy. This, I feel, is the payoff to the setup from the director's cut in her first therapy session where she's talking about how seeing Andy reminds her of the pain. And when she's reminded of the pain, she gets so angry that she has these thoughts. I could see that wasn't in the theatrical cut. I could see where in the theatrical cut people would now be confused. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, what the fuck? Where is this? And why does she want to kill her friend? It's like, but in the director's cut, we're told why she's having these visions. Mm. And the director's cut, when she wakes up from it, she just frantically starts going through the medicine cabinet, find out she's out of medicine, and just freaks the fuck out. Yeah. She freaks the fuck out. What happens next? I'm and lost. So I'm just like, uh... this is the, see, this is really the hard part between going between two well, cuts like this. Because we cut to the next therapy session. The second therapy session, which doesn't happen in the theatrical cut. Now, in the theatrical cut, it, it, did it go straight to the fair, or was there something in between that? Um... Yeah, I think it went straight to the fair with her being calm and walking around. And okay. With that with the with Lou being exercised from it. Yes. Now in the in the next scene we get we get two distinct two two how should I put it diverging like in the wood kind of like two also. diverging scenes that all center around the same thing. There's, it, it's now Halloween. No, don't we get the strip club kill next? Because that signifies that it's Halloween. In the theatrical cut. Um, yeah, because the th- stripper kill does not happen until later on in the night. Um, on the 30th. Because the the strip club killing... Yeah, because we see... Because my notes is or Annie and Lori fight after the therapy session. Because she sees Lou in okay. the day. They have a fight. And later on that night, we see the strip kill attack in the th- director's cut. See, that's interesting because I always believe that the, the fair took place on Halloween and then the strip club murder. I think it was the night before. It takes place the night before, but that's when the that's owner's the strip club says, cut. oh, it's midnight. Yeah. But he says that in both of them, doesn't he? No, because they cut that line out. Yeah. Okay. They cut in later on. They I've cut seen. that line out. All right. So in the director's cut, we get – that's the thing. Sorry, and, folks. And I swear to you, I swear to God, folks, this, all these – Jumping around doesn't affect the pacing of the film. No. It does feel like a very solid beginning, middle, end. It's just you, you do go from so many different places, and with two cuts of the film, it can be tough to keep track of, even though I have seen this film 
you know, plenty of times. In the director's cut, we go to the Rabbit and Red Lounge, where where Deborah Myers worked in the first one. They are now taking full advantage of the notoriety. No, 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 no. not in the director's cut. Not after this this epileptic seizure. In the therapy session next. But in the director's cut, that's how we find out it's Halloween. No, not yet. That's how we find out it's Halloween. No, we we, we find no, no, yeah, but no, we have because she sees Lou earlier on that day on the thirtieth. And the pig farm, and that's why she gets so freaked out, and then she goes to her therapy session, it goes wrong, she heard Annie fight, and then we go to the strip club at night. Should we pop the disc back in? No, I know air? for a fact. All right, calm down. No, uh, no, because after that, it, we because we never see Lou during the day in the theatrical cut. After the seizure, it Who's goes Lou? the the strip club owner, owner, which is a, he was briefly in the first one. We do see him deal with Cherry Moon uh, very briefly in uh, the movie, but th- there were more scenes deleted on the Halloween 1 uh, Blu-ray, like inside the Rabbit and Red Club. And so, um, yeah, so because we go through the seizure to then going to the therapy session of her dealing with Margot Kidder trying to get more medication, and it's not working out because afterward, because she, she, re- she retells the story of her in the town square Seeing Lou handing out popcorn to the kids and having sending inappropriate right. jokes, and then okay. goes to the pig pen, and then how that freaks out, and then it's all building, and she ends up turning on Margot Kidder. Okay, so I remember now. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, that's okay. But anyway, yes, this this scene is played out in two very different ways in both cuts. I swear, and once again, folks, I'll reassure you. I swear to God, this doesn't affect the pacing of the film. Just the show. Uh, just the show. That's all. <laughs> when you're trying to. Fucking piece together so many scenes from yeah. two different cuts and find out where they go. But next thing we're gonna cover is Alien Three. Those two different cuts. Fuck, <laughs> I ain't touching that shit with a hundred foot pole. Come on. But anywho, the, the next scene centers around a, a, a town fair leading up leading up to Halloween. You know, mm. a nice fun fair. There's uh, the character of Lou who runs a strip club. You know, as dressing up as a Frankenstein monster. I guess hanging out with kids or whatever because that's who you really want hanging around. Maybe that's who Rob Zombie wants hanging around. Strip club owner. But there's this cute little petting zoo. In the theatrical cut, we see Lori go visit this fair. An adorable, like, teacup pig. Yep, she, she, goes up, she goes up to the, the, the petting zoo area, talks to the owner, and, and meets this little, little uh, I think she said mini potbelly, mm-hmm. <clears throat> named Henry. And she says, oh, you're so cute. I just want to take you home with me. And it's showing the sympathetic Lori. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, the still lovable, still Lori. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say, hey, I want to take you home, but give, gives him back and, you know, goes on with her day. In the director's cut, though, we get shots of this intercut with her in therapy where she is having this massive, like, panic attack, you know, freak-out session because – but none of the audio from the actual fair is in no, there like it, it is in the theatrical. It's just the audio from her freaking out over this footage. It's something where it's like she went to something that was so incredibly nice and beautiful and happy – and she had a, she had an episode. She had an episode. It just it just triggered something, and it freaked her out. And and she ran out of her meds, so she's just like and like I fucking sympathize with that so much. Where it's like, because uh, I think you did you say it earlier in this, or was it off off where Rob Zombie became a vegan because he saw slaughterhouse footage and yeah, it was like uh, it was yeah. They apparently like he had saw like when he was a kid. It was like like an industrial film or documentary yeah. about. I, I bet you. Troy McClure probably uh, voiceover for it, but of like 
how slaughterhouses work, and that's how he became a vegetarian, which later became a vegan afterwards. And here's the thing, though. I, I've seen that footage, too. I, I, I'm not the same. I've seen fucking, you know, insider slaughterhouse footage is some of the most horrible fucking shit I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I've seen the fucking fur farm footage out in China. That is some of the most horrible shit I've ever seen. It, it, I think it's made me just the even more of the introvert I already am. Mm-hmm. I'm not a people person. I, I fucking cannot stand watching the news. Mm-hmm. And when I see, you know, like I, ha- I have a, a I, I would say I definitely have a respect for vegans. I am not one, mostly because it's like it, it, it even if it is against, you know, there's the arguments made it's against the human diet to eat meat. How vegans are so much healthier, but there's the also the argument that we are supposed to because of protein deficiencies and shit. I think our sentience allows us to choose what we want to. Yeah, it's just our our sentience comes with a ton of emotional baggage because instinctually there are animals that do and don't eat meat. Yeah. And I still do, and and believe me, I feel a fucking guilt over it. I believe that the fucking meat and the food industry needs their fucking change. It yeah. needs a drastic overhaul. There is so much that is overproduced. <laughs> I mean, ever since Upton Sinclair's um, Urban Jungle and like exposing the slaughterhouse tendencies back in the turn of the century, and how that did change legislation to effectively changed how slaughterhouse uh, practices were done. But it's definitely still, like, nowadays, like... I feel like it's like law of diminishing returns. The more shit gets exposed, the less gets done anymore. Yeah. Because ultimately, people don't care. They want their meat. Mm-hmm. People are... They'll fucking joke about it without even really knowing it. Yeah. How fucking deep it goes. I've I've had friends that, like... Yeah, like, See their friends that post this shit and just like, yeah, it ruins my day and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you don't fucking understand. Like, you see this shit. You see how deep it goes and it fucking changes you. It affects you. Mm. I feel this guilt. Like, I, I, I absolutely, like... I was wondering where this is going. I fucking love to eat bacon. I yeah. will not say it, but I also think pigs are some just some of the most beautiful animals ever. I think that they're adorable. Even mm. the big, fat, ugly, potbelly ones. I yes. think they're adorable. And when I see like little, you know, like pigs and people that own pigs and why they, this one was given such a good, this good life and, and trillions more will never get to experience, trillions more will, will live a matter of weeks before they are just violently destroyed. Mm-hmm. So if, even if they're that lucky, cause they're the one that don't grow fast enough and they kill them when they're babies horribly. Mm-hmm. I have those moments where I just fucking like just begin feeling like I'm fucking losing my grip. Like Lori was where mm-hmm. she saw something so beautiful that just triggered something. Yeah, I mean, like I've, had those, I've had those moments where I, I, I another confession time, this, this happens to me maybe every two weeks or every week, depending, where I am doing wonderful. I am on the highest of highs. Like, I am feeling so good. I feel good. Every interaction socially, verbally, like, I, I make the other person smile. I make sure they're having a good day. I'm having a good day. And, but in the back of my mind, I think the other shoe is going to drop. And something, and I don't know if it's just because when I become subconscious of that or something actually does. And I am the lowest of lows. No bright sky will be able to, be able to cheer me up. And, like, I have those moments where, like, I'm never going to be happy again. I'm the same fucking way. And I, 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 and I feel like I probably should be seeing somebody that's, and I should be Medicaid. I know this. And I, and I know I... Really need to rectify this. Just this past week, fucking, I was talking with one of my other my other best friend, who's also a huge Halloween fan, and we were talking about you know like she's having troubles with her friends and some of her friends I'm you know I I've kind of been interested in at a dating capacity and mm-hmm. just the issues between that with what they're doing with their and how just fucking bad decisions they're making and it just completely it, it killed my whole fucking day. It just got me so soured on 
dating. I don't want to sound like a misogynist. It got me soured on women because I have had many difficulties with that. I'm not blaming you, ladies. I'm not. Trust me. But it ruined my whole fucking day and I couldn't sleep. I was just awake the whole fucking night. Now, I, I'm so fucking severe with this shit, I probably should be on medication or seeing therapy. But I think everybody could benefit from the thing, though, I don't think I need it. I think, personally, all I need to change my fucking life is just for my hard work to finally pay off and to have the success that I need. Because I'm still trying to get, even though, I, as I said earlier, I work at a school, but I am not a full-time permanent employee. I'm currently a per diem employee making literal minimum wage. Mm. But a full-time in hire. In, like, the richest neighborhoods on, in the richest on Long Island. On Long Island, which is a expensive place to live in general. But the starting salary for my position when you get in full-time and the fact that it's, you know, union, good union, too. Yeah. Fucking, and a pension, I'm set for fucking life. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just, you got to eat that shit sandwich until you, you make it, and it's so easy to screw up, so every day I'm just fucking paranoid. Mm-hmm. And even when I get hired, you have to pass a six-month probation period, I'm going to be even more of a basket case yeah. when that happens. And but I've been told point, by... Yeah, but at that point, at least you have, you've... I have some sense of accomplishment at that point. Well, I actually have to feel comfortable in that. As I told, said other best friend I should talk about, she wants to go out and, you know, celebrate her and say, I ain't doing shit until I pass my probation. We're not doing dick until six months later. All right, I guess I'll... Because it may send, not last. So, I'll send the cake with a naked woman in there back then. The only, give it, send it to me six months after I get hired. Okay. Plan it for six months later. <laughs> I, don't, I don't take the person out of the cake for six months. Oh, shit. <laughs> Lurch. And then Did I lose you? my job because of the fucking there's a dead body and I'm involved. Thanks, Dick. Lurch. Oh no, man. Was she I'm... was she that cake what you put in the oven? Dude, when I get hired, I'm embattening down the fucking hatches. I am hoarding like a damn squirrel, paying off all my debts, paying off everything, making my sure my car is in top working condition because if it doesn't work out, I cannot be in the same place I am now. Right. <laughs> Anywho, once again, anything goes, folks. Yeah, and so the reason why we Captain bring, up bring downs with the idea of like an idea of that triggering you and, like, how you can go 0 to 180 in so fast. That's what happens to Lori. And she's screaming at Margot Kidder just to give me something to tie her over. And she's like, no, according to my records, you should have plenty of medication left, and you don't. She's been abusing it. So she went to prescribe her something else, and Lori just laughed it off like, this isn't going to fucking work. You know, like... You don't care. Fuck you. I'm out of here. Yeah, and, it, it, and the scene, this scene between the two cuts is night and fucking day. Just like, like how Lori is portrayed in these two cuts is night and day. And it's so unfortunate that... The sympathetic side in the theatrical cut isn't combined because I feel like to really understand her struggle, you need to see that there is still a, a that good Lori is still there and that she's struggling with, you know, just losing her fucking marbles. Mm. And it's just, it's very unfortunate like that. And like, and like Margot Kidder is trying her damnedest to calm Lori here. And I'm just like, and you just feel for her in this moment. She's trying to get her to get out everything she's feeling, but in a, in a calm way. Because she right. could see it, it, it's like, it's like upsetting her. She's like in tears, like rambling almost incoherently. Which is funny because there's a moment in the first zombie Halloween where it's one of the therapy sessions between uh, Michael and um, Loomis where he's screaming and he's got the mask on. There is, it's very inaudible, but you can hear Loomis say, let, let, it all let, out. let it all out. And he's like, fuck you, fuck you. And then like that's when it cuts to later on and it's like, it's like he's just like... After oh, Michael gets it out, he's just laying there like, like trying, holding back the tears and Loomis is trying to comfort him. It's kind of like a, like, a ba- like a kid who's been crying so violently that it, like they literally tire themselves out. It's like one of those moments. But Loomis sees the sympathy, and that's one of the things I like about Loomis and Michael's relationship in the first one. 
Right. Is and that he, Loomis cares, but he knows that, like, this person needs to be fucking stopped and he's afraid of him. But later on in, like, the next, like, scene is in, and now Lori's taken to self-medicating with alcohol. Yep. And he and gets to her face, room. and they, they, get, they get into it. In the, in each other's face. This scene, there's no part of the scene that's in the thea- theatrical cut. And I miss this scene. Lori's fucking, you know, drinking, and the two of them are in each other's face, and Lori's telling her, back the fuck off, back the fuck off. And Andy's trying to be that, like, I don't want to say overly maternal, but trying to tell her, you know, you're on... She 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 flips back her hair where there's a big scar on her forehead, and he does, and says, you're not the only one who suffered. Yeah. You're not the only one who suffered through this. And... I guess that's that's Annie's coping mechanism is to just you know mature and soldier on through yeah. it, which is why she's changed so much as a person from the first. She's point. not going to let this define her. Yes, and this is what she's trying to impart on Lori, and Lori is not having it one bit. But the thing is, do you think she's being too hard on Lori? Do you think she's looking at her like I got over it? Why don't you? Well, there's a because I've been in a situation where everybody else is giving tough love, and I'm the one being the supportive one. And it's still not working. There's a point where you start to consider tough love. And the fact that Annie and her father have taken her in, given her a home, given her food, and, like, help her try and get some sort of life on her back, and she's still being this disrespectful, I can see, like, Annie kind of boiling over and saying, like, all right, I've had enough of this shit. Like, two years worth of this thing coming to a breaking point, and this is where it's finally happening. Well, we don't see it really with Brackett so much, but I kind of get the feeling that Brackett took her in because he almost feels like responsible for responsibly because he was the one that omitted Lori from the police report and put her up for adoption with you know and then those two people are dead because of it yes and this also comes into play a little bit later when Loomis's book is finally released yeah um but yeah yeah there's there's the fight between the two and I've been in that situation before where it's like I almost feel like Annie's overdoing a bit where people have tried to give me advice based on, well, I did it this way and it worked for me. But it's like, yes, but I'm not uh, you. you. Yeah. I'm not you. And that's the one thing that a lot of people in my life don't fucking understand. Which is- I'm not you. I haven't lived your life. I don't have your experiences. No, that's I don't I'm- have your, your you know chemistry, your biological chemistry that you get from your part of the family. Right. And that's why whenever I try and give people's advice, I try and be as tactful as possible. I hate giving advice. I, I've had friends tell me I give great advice. I feel like I always give bad advice because I can never fully – you can never fully see something from another person's well, perspective. Well, you did try to tell me to slaughter my them. family once, and I didn't take that advice, though. You did? I did? Yeah. When? Don't worry about it. I'm fucking with you. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say, that might be something I might have jokingly said. <laughs> <laughs> I might out of touch? No. It's the children's fault. It's the children's fault. <laughs> and so – we move on. Now, next, is this is this the it's part? Is a strip club. Okay. I was going to say, is it the part where, where Brackett's watching the news report with Loomis, the news featurette? I didn't document that because I didn't think it was that important. All right. Well, at one part, Brackett is I, – I, you know what? I think it is because it sets up Brackett's next, part, next major part where Brackett, you know, he's watching TV and there's the news report in front of the Myers house of Loomis, you know, talking about his book and, say, and talking about how – Oh, well, Michael's body disappeared. And he said, well, if that's up to the incompetent police, kind of, you know, pinning it on brackets. Like, yeah. It's not my fault Michael's body disappeared. And talking about his new book and saying things that will be in it. And bracket, we see him kind of get concerned. Mm-hmm. That's, in the, <laughs> that's in there somewhere, folks. But that, yeah. I feel, that I feel is a bit of a setup for the next major thing with bracket. But we get now the strip club scene. Um, we're back to the rabbit and red lounge from the first one. 
Yeah. Which, which was referenced in the original Halloween, the strip club where Deborah Myers worked at, which now has taken full advantage of just fucking... Yeah, it's taken one of the advertisements or the design of one of the advertisements and made a giant mural on the side of the building. The home of Deborah, you know, where this is where Deborah Myers were basically taking advantage of, of the Michael Myers infamy. Yeah. Saying, That's is- like saying Ford saying, we sold Broncos, the ones that OJ drove around. Yeah, get the car that OJ drove, you yeah. know? <laughs> Which is funny, like one point when I was in college, uh, we did an on-the-road broadcast in our for a hockey team at our rivals, uh, Geneseo, and also in our one car and all the equipment is in a uh, truck behind us, in front of us. So we pull on the road and they're ahead of us. We're like, follow that Bronco! And that's where the truck we followed all the way to Geneseo. But anywho, as Michael has made his way into Haddonfield, inside the Rabbit Red Lounge, the owner, what would you say his name was, Lou? Lou. Him, one of the strippers who he's banging on the side, and one of his employees that he treats like shit, they're watching the featurette. Yeah, on Howard. The, they're watching the featurette on the town fair where Louis dressed up as Frankenstein. Monster. From Frankenstein. Oh, whatever. Frankenstein. He's, his name is Frankenstein because in that you take on the name of your father. That, that's the reasoning in the book. Okay. So his name is fucking Frankenstein. Get over it, people. <laughs> you could call him the monster. You could call him Frankenstein. Whatever. The creature, whatever. The creature, whatever. But he's no, dressed up as Frankenstein, trying to promote his strip club on the, the news while he's around children. You know, saying, hey, look at that, look at me, whatever. Woo! So he, after uh, verbally berating Howard, he tells him to take out the garbage. Howard takes it out, begrudgingly pissed off. Yeah. And as like, he goes, like, why? I don't want to kind of moment. And as he goes to go back inside, there's Michael standing there just staring him down, confronting him. But maskless. Yeah. So after giving him some, I guess, thinly veiled threats, Howard... I hit the bricks, Dorothy. Don't give me no reason. Yep. Howard tries to go past him, and he won't let him. He punches him in the face and hurts his hand on it. Yeah. Michael then gives him the uh, great choke slam. Yeah. And stomps on his head repeatedly until he's dead. All unmasked. Now, the continuity we have presented so far, and actually even from here on out, we go back into it, is that Michael does not kill unless he's wearing a mask. Because wearing a mask hides his ugliness. When he wears a mask, he's the shape, and the shape protects Michael and his family. Right. Correct? Yes, yes, you were correct there. Okay. Are you comfortable now? Tim was just adjusting a pillow. Yeah, no, like my back is starting to hurt. That's why. And interestingly enough, now, back in the Rabbit Red Lounge, uh, Lou is about to make love to the stripper. Uh, the that's direct- a, that's the cleanest way to say that. I guess <laughs> nothing clean about that. About no, that. especially the extended like cut of that scene. Well, yes, and the director's cut that scenes a li- that scenes a little extended where where Lou he wants to dress up as the monster while having just sex about with him. he's he's about to have sex with her. He says, "Oh, it's after midnight." She's like, "My pussy's not going to turn into a pumpkin because rednecks." Yeah, he says, "No, that means it's Halloween." So he wants to dress up as the uh, put on his Frankenstein costume and have sex with her, and he's making all these Frankenstein sexual innuendos. <laughs> Pushing, good. Ah, good. Yeah. So he, this was that beginning part was trimmed in the theatrical cut. Fortunately, yeah. I think it, it, yeah. it helps. It helps. It's even worse in the deleted scenes. Oh my god! Where it's she even comes more in there, he's doing. He's he's um, doing the books. To, yeah. Of and he's just like making sure everything's accounted for. And she's like, I'm horny. And she jumps the desk and grabs the like accountant paperwork away from his hands. Wipes it on her vagina. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, come on. And Michael, throughout this deleted version of it, this whole scene, there's a deleted version, is not wearing his mask. No. He does all these kills. However, when in the both theatrical and director's cut version, he, he storms in there, startles the shit out of them as they're beginning to have sex. And he is wearing his mask. And yeah. he does all these kills while wearing the mask. He kills Lou. 
She tries to run out but can't get through the door that I guess is now barricaded or locked extra. Mm-hmm. But she sees Howard's body hung up with the, the, his head that now looks like the fucking pie from American Pie after Jim got a hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just tell your mother we ate it. We'll just tell your mother that uh, we ate it. <laughs> He then grabs her by the back of the head and starts smashing her face over and over again into a mirror, at which point she goes to grab his face to try and stop him and rips off the damaged part of the mask from the... Revealing his true face. From the, from the gunshot that was grazed by Lori's bullet at the end of Halloween 1. This mm-hmm. is where Michael's face is now partially exposed. I fe- I, as I said earlier, I, I kind of like how this works. I kind of like the look that Tyler Maine was giving. Mm-hmm. I, I felt it, I, I liked how... The mask is a little offset from how his actual face is sitting. It yeah. gives a kind of a creepier vibe to it. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. And after he's done killing her, he does have the courtesy, though, to go over and, and hit, turn the outside light the, the outside light from open to closed, indicating yeah. don't come here. And so uh, we move on, and then afterwards we have the book release, finally, in the director's cut. And we see um, Laurie gets a copy, Brackett gets a copy, and then the, it's coinciding with the fact that there's a book release going on in Haddonfield itself. Yep, there's a book signing. Brackett freaks out, Brackett, so does Laurie. He reads it, he is just fucking angry. Pissed. He is fucking pissed. This is where I feel the setup of him watching Loomis on TV really helped because I don't know, would Brackett have bothered to even buy one of Loomis? Yeah. Would, he, would he have known that much about it if it wasn't I've being I read your book promoted? and I think you made enough money off the blood of the innocent people in this town. That's the thing. If it wasn't being heavil- that heavily promoted, would he have bothered to even read it? He probably wouldn't have dignified it by giving his money to it. He probably would have gotten it maybe later. Yeah. Just to, just out of morbid curiosity, but not at that point. Lori passes by the bookstore. She <laughs> kind of wants to walk away and not be reminded of it. But instead, she walks, like, curiosity gets the better of it. She walks in, she she gets her copy, and I can't remember, does the signing scene happen before or after she reads it? Um, After. Okay. No, 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 because we go in, we cut to the book signing, and then we cut to back to her reaction. Yes. So in the book signing scene, Loomis is, you know, signing books. Uh, one crazy fan named Chet, who wants him to sign the book as Chet, the bringer of death, goes on this spiel about how Michael represents all the... the... He eats your soul, man. Yeah, he's kind of some weirdo. Even Loomis recognizes it. And he he buggers off. The next person that comes signing is just this ordinary, you know, middle-aged-looking man. He asks him, just holds, hands it to him. Blah. He opens it, and there's a picture inside of a young girl. Loomis says, oh, who's this? The you don't girl. recognize her? We, the camera, get to see it. It's a picture of Linda. Yeah. He says, oh, I don't know. This is my daughter, Linda. Your monster butchered her. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. I didn't do it. And and you he, killed her. Yep. And he starts blaming Loomis for, you know, the killing of his daughter, which, which truthfully, it isn't Loomis's fault. No. Even in the original Halloween 2, Brackett says, you let him out. It's like, yeah. you never let him out. But irrational, like... Uh, irrational reason. fear and, and trauma and stuff drives people nuts. It does throughout the whole Halloween series. Loomis gets blamed for Michael Myers in every movie he's in. Right. And it's to the point where, like, he's, like, he's going to be escorted away by security, but the man pulls a gun on yep, Loomis. he was carrying a gun. Now, the thing is, I could see where he'd have this horrible anger. Yeah. Because Loomis, clearly, in this movie, is exploiting yeah. the death of Linda. Now, if Loomis was played more sympathetic, this could have been, like, some kind of a almost breaking point for him. Right. With his agent saying, what the hell am I doing? You know, this, mm-hmm. this is absolutely insane. Yeah, because the next scene, we see him later on. In a limo. And he's, like, he doubles down on it. Yep. He calls he's, up. He's doing. A, he's doing a talk show that night, and, and then Jimmy Cricket, his publisher, says, "Like, no, this is crossing a lot of lines, and this is what's going to happen if you keep doing it." Yep, it's crazies are going to come after you. 
And speaking of crazy, that's when Lori reads the passage that reveals the fact that she is Angel Myers. This is when Lori goes past the point of no return. Yeah. Now, her sister, her, her true birth name is never given in the original series. In the first Death of Lori Strode comic, mm. which follows the H2O timeline, if you want to do the whole split timeline thing, which yeah. I begrudgingly have, but I don't like to talk about it. Or see, mm-hmm. see Halloween H2O podcast, yeah. where, where after 20 years of, of thinking H2O could be connected to 4, 5, and 6, I, ha- I had to throw in this towel. Yeah. But anywho, <clears throat> yeah, the first Death of Laurie Strode comics established her name as Cynthia Myers, mm-hmm. but officially in the movies, it's never been given. Count the comics if you want, yeah. especially this un- sadly unfinished trilogy. But in this, she was, her birth name is Angel Myers. We were never given that in the first one. She's no. just known as Boo. Yeah. That's the nickname Michael had for her and what almost was his, his the word he spoke. Yeah. Lori has, just has this psychotic breakdown in her car, you know, punching the steering wheel, screaming the word fuck. Where have I heard that before? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she goes home to get her shit to get out of there because she wants to be with her friends and just to, to try and process information. Emotions are now running hot. But before this happens, Brackett calls Annie saying, is, has Lori come back? Is Lori there? No. And like, wh- wh- why? Why? What- what's wrong? Like, well, just let me know. I need to speak with her. It- it- everything's okay. Just I need to talk to her. Brackett don't want to give give in. But Lori comes back and it's no use. She comes back in, in a big hush, grabs a whole bunch of her shit, goes down the steps, mad as hell. Asking Annie, please tell me you didn't know. Oh, Daddy's little princess, you probably did. And tell and tell your dad when you see him that Angel, Angel says, says fuck, "Fuck you." And who's Angel? Who's Angel? She storms out of there. We now cut to Lori, you know, just speeding down the road, blasting, you know, "Am, Am I, I evil?" evil by, by Diamond, Diamond Head. Head. Yeah. You know, crying horribly. A car passes her by. A little Which too is fast. A perfect. I know we've been critical of Rob Zombie's use of source music in his movies, but here it, it actually makes. Because you would think, like, because like the chorus says, like, "Am I evil? Yes, yes I, I am. am." And like we it, have that first part. Well, yeah, go ahead. And in the beginning of the first verse, opens up like, "My mother was a witch. She, she was, was burned, burned alive. alive." But in this, this is uh, what was this intercut with? This was intercut with something. What? Um, I think it was like just. It was a quick back and forth between something, because we have the "Am I evil?" and the car like passes by her going a little too fast. And she just starts screaming out the window, I fuck you, blah, blah. Yeah. Or is it just intercut with her, just a shot of her flying down the road? I think, it's, I think it's that. You know, screaming out the window at other drivers, speeding, and then just crying. And put, I've been in that situation. Yep. I, I've had that with the music blasting. And when it and when it cuts to the second one, back in the car, her just like screaming, punching the wheel, that's where it cuts to, my mother was a witch. Right. She was burned burn alive. alive. And it's, it, it fucking fits. It's so yeah. appropriate. It's like, that spoke to it's, me. It's blatant, but it works. That spoke to me. And, and when I first saw it in theaters, and even with the context of when I saw it in, first in theaters, mm. I didn't have that moment because of, you know, that content with my sister. I had that over fucking girl trouble from years ago. Girl and friend trouble from years ago. Yeah. And so afterwards, I, I related. So she goes, she goes to Maya, and I guess Maya and Harley are roommates. Yeah, and she reveals what happens. And Harley's unaware of what's going on. Maya's being the concerned person here. Harley comes out with her uh, like Doctor Frankenfurter. Yeah, of they're all going to go to a big Halloween party as Rocky Horror Picture Show characters. Yeah, and Harley, I'm a chick who's a, well, who's, dude, who's a, dude a dude that wants, wants to be a, a dude that wants to be a chick. That's her like reasoning. It's like I'm not. I, I guess that's how you get around. Whatever. Copyright laws. It's kind. Of, it's kind of like unnamed bald villain with an accent in uh, 
what the fuck was it? Which, which James Bond movie was it that was not addressed by name and, and dropped in the smokestack? Oh, that was in Fear Your Eyes Only. That was Fear Your Eyes Only. Okay, yes. Roger Moore, you know, was visiting the grave of his late wife and... Mm-hmm. On, because of due to lawsuit issues. Yes, because it was um, I forget the dude's name. The co-writer of uh, Thunderball, Thunderball because that, sued for royalties over Blofeld and Spectre. Because like two years afterwards, you would both have Octopussy and um, Never Say Never Again came out in theaters the same summer. But and, yeah, unnamed bald Bond villain in a yeah, wheelchair. Yeah, you never seen the front because it's obviously Blofeld. Yes, got Mister Bond. Bond. Mister Bond. And, and then yeah, he starts piloting this the hel- the remote control helicopter that that not Blofeld. Yeah, that blowjob is using to but that's one of my favorite helicopter stunts that entire series. Anyway, oh, but then he picks his wheelchair up and he says, "Mister Bond, we can work this out." I, my favorite line: "I will buy you a delicatessen." It's like, I'm sorry, I tried to kill you, so I'm gonna I'm gonna buy you something to eat. Yeah, Tim. If I take you to the deli, will that make up for the many times I tried to kill you? I take you for a good deli sandwich, and I know a good deli sandwich when I know. But instead, you just drop me into a smokestack, and I die. Perfect logic. I just I will not. I will buy you all the world's riches, jewelry, gold. I will buy you food, a Faberge egg, or something like that. Fuck it. I will buy you a lava lamp because it's cool to look at. No, I will buy you. I'll buy you something. You're just gonna shit out twelve hours later. Yeah. Anyway, so. Decide, well, it was Blofeld. He's not really going to, no. you know, give him anything nice. Exactly. So, and then they, Lori wants to go out. She wants to party. And then, like, Maya's kind of like, no, I think we should stay in. But, like, Harley and, and Lori like, no, let's go, let's go, let's go, please, please, please. So she concedes, and they go out to the party. At the same time, uh, Loomis is get to meet uh, Weird Al Yankovic and Chris Hardwick. Yeah. Loomis is on a TV talk show, one of his appearances, and Chris Hardwick is the host of this fictitious talk show. Yeah. This fictitious late-night show. Which, like, he would go on to be a, a talk show host. Ironically. Yeah. But this is before the controversy of his relationship came out um, and everything. But, but even but, more odder, Weird Al Yankovic is just randomly one of the other he, he must have been just a buddy of Rob's. I mean, there's no reason reason why Weird Al is playing himself in this movie. But they get Dr. Loomis out, and all they do is just shit on him the whole time. Oh, yeah, it's a total rib. It's a total rib. Uh, at this point, also, uh, Brackett, little nervous about, you know, what day it is and what's transpired now. I sent- want you to go to my house, and I want you to look over Annie. Well, boss, she's going to be... I don't want to do that. I don't care what she wants. I- you can stand outside all night with a shotgun like you did the year before. Yeah, Loomis sends one of his deputies to watch over Annie, and when he gets there, Annie just berates him. <laughs> like this, this is this is still signs of old Annie from the first one, where she's she, that respected in the least because she's the da- the sheriff's because her daddy's the, the sheriff. sheriff. I was say because she's the daddy's sheriff. sheriff. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it. It's almost eleven o'clock at night, folks. Yeah, do you because have to drive home because she is the daughter of the sheriff. She can just talk to her. She calls him a jackhole at one calls point. Him a, like a jackhole just makes fun of this police officer, you know, and he's got to you know stand there and watch over her. But they all go to the party. Uh, Harley, Maya, and Lori go to this party dressed as Dr. Frankenfurter, Columbia, and Magenta, respectively. Mm-hmm. And it's this big old Halloween, ba- redneck Halloween bash. They have a uh, Psycho Billy Band. I don't yeah. even know if it's a real band. No, it's not. Captain, Captain Clegg, Clegg and, and the, the, the Night Creatures. And, like and that. The, the fucking fart knockers. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It was, <laughs> they did make an album. Yeah. Rob Zombie financed it, I yeah. think. And but like, there's topless women on stage dancing. We have Seymour Coffins played by the same actor who played Howard, who got his face smashed in before. Yeah, the actor who played Howard also plays this character 
Uncle Seymour Coffins or whatever. Yeah, he's the, be, he's like, like, like the a, master of ceremonies slash host for this Halloween party. And he's just playing, telling non, very unfunny jokes, even by my standards. He's telling jokes. He's telling jokes whose subject matter at this particular party are totally in line with things like the B2 movement. You know? Yeah. Totally not, you know, misogynistic at all. No. And so, well, they're all having a good time. Um, Harley meets, meets a, up with this meets very a gentleman. Short, yeah, a short wolf man. A guy dressed up as a wolf man. And takes him back to the van, and they're about to have sex, but he goes outside because he needs to piss. And, and oh, God, Angie, you have such patience. Yeah, because she's like, he's ready to leave the van. He's like, I, I got to take a piss. He's like, what? Maybe what? I'm into water sports. And she just licks her lips. And her, and like, I like the golden like, showers. It's like, that's and, gross. And he goes oh. to take a piss to go against the tree. This is actually the scare works because we're seeing the back of him, and it's kind of like three-quarters of the frame like is open. And they're like, literally jump cut. Like They cut a few frames of Michael impaling the dude to the tree with his giant hunting And knife. it goes from stable to complete shaky cam. It's like someone slapped the camera operator in the back of the head real like, quick. Just a whack, like, whoa! Just a light, like, boom, like that, uh, that kind of jars you. Him. Yeah, so he kills the wolf man. Yeah, uh, without silver. Yep, without a silver. But hey, who knows, maybe the hunt, butcher knife or hunting well, knife, whatever also, it was. No wonder it's so effective. And, this, and then Harley gets probably the... Least violent death? She gets. The, she does. She gets the single least violent, almost nicest death of the movie, where she's just sitting there in the van, waiting for this guy to come back, getting kind of pissed off, and Michael breaks through the back window and chokes her to death. Yeah. Bloodless, easy. Yeah. Nothing to it. No. Uh, but this is when <coughs> Lori has party. another episode. She she's just been fucking knocking back drink after drink, 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 yeah, drink, drink after drink. But that's what she's drinking. She's drinking drink. That's how about screwed her up she is. Fucking head is just going, you know, haywire. She's having another episode, and at this point, she starts seeing the visions of Deborah Myers and young Michael. Yeah, the same as adult Michael's having, with the blank expressions on their face they have in the entire movie. Asking them, "Who are you? You know who we are." And you she know. thinks she's. Be- then she sees. She feels like she's being attacked by Michael at one point in his. His dream outfit of, like, the coveralls and the bloody mask. And his Halloween 1 outfit, yeah. you know, because that's the only time she's ever seen him where she's attacked. But really, she's not. She's just having a fucking freak out. Maya calms her down. I, in the middle of this, and no one's saying anything because it's, it's this wild party. The music's playing. No one's doing nobody, anything. But nobody Maya, notices. Maya finds her yeah. and, you know, calms down. Lori, we got we to gotta go. We got to go. Lori's drunk off her ass. She doesn't want to leave. She wants to go in there, back in there. Say, Where's Harley? Oh, she... Now she's probably back. She's probably back in. We gotta go find. Now she probably went. She probably left with a guy again. Yeah. Thank you. Just slut shamer while you're at it. Yeah, just slut shamer while you're at it. And so then we cut to the bracket house, and this is where the second like scary moment gets me. Yep. Because uh, it's just a wide shot of the house. The cop, he's just you know pacing. And he lights a cigarette. And he's getting ready for bed. Yeah. Lights a cigarette. He's pacing and on the porch, and that cuts to a wide shot of the whole house. No, he's not. He's he's on the yard. He's actually in the yard. He's not on the porch itself. Because At first he was, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. He descends the steps and he walks into the yard, lights up the cigarette, and we see this tree prominently next to him, and he's just sitting there. And just, and this, this but shot very, lingers. very dark. Yeah. You, you can't even really make out him. That's how yeah, dark he is. Yeah, the only light the, source is just like from the porch. You just see the silhouette of him. All of a sudden, you see the silhouette of Michael step out from behind the tree and garrot him. Yeah. And then he goes into the house. And it was really effective because it's like – and, and how, how much more effective do you think it would have been if it were in 235? Yeah. Or even better, like, even like him – like, what if he turned around, like, he lights a cigarette, like, he, he turns away from the wind, and he lights – tries to illuminate his lighter, lights it, and he sees Michael right there. Or if this were shot in 235, he paces a little further, and often the further end, you know, you have the tree on the left – 
in the furthering, you have maybe like his cop car or something else that's there. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a place where if, if Michael's going to strike, where's it going to be from the left or from the right? Uh-huh. And he's pacing back and forth, you know, giving you the wide open. He could be anywhere like John Carpenter originally gave us. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty effective. Uh, Annie getting ready for bed, you know, brushing her teeth. Moves her cabinet mirror over, and in, I guess, I don't want to call it a film student shot, but it's a pretty obvious overused shot where a character tilts a mirror a certain way, and there's the killer in the background. Yeah. You know, there's Michael. She finishes brushing her teeth, gets up, you know. Turns. Turns like she knows something's there, looks at him. And this is the beginning of our fucking slow motion spamming. Starts running away in slow motion. Well, the audio plays in regular motion. They both of them run off camera, and all of a sudden you start hearing crash, Ruff. squish, stab. Yeah, and her death is you know off screen and very implied. Well, her attack is off screen. Hmm? We think she's dead, but it's just her attack. All right, her attack. Um, so Lori and my make their way home. They make their way back to Annie's house. Yeah. Lori, I guess by this point, after drinking the night away, feels she's got to face the music. Yeah. Like, I am Michael Myers' yep. sister. She screams to the heavens. <laughs> Gets on the porch and one last, one last, uh, I guess, hurrah for the yeah. night. Yells out, hey, world, I'm Michael Myers' sister. I'm so fucked. Gets back inside. And unfortunately, there's a, there's a couple of, I want to say there's a couple of variations to this, but I'm Director's not sure. Director's Cut right. is them trying to make tea. Yep. Talking over yeah. what's gone on. Right. How and... Lori feels she should face the music. But then we see in the uh, the the room in front of that, in like the doorway where we see them, we see Michael walk past. And yeah. It's like, oh, fuck. They're walking into shit. Mm. In a deleted scene, Maya and Lori are sitting on a couch, and Lori's just, you know, crying her eyes out, saying how bad she, she was to Annie. Yeah, she, she, she wants remorse. to apologize. Like she, she's like, I need to apologize. Another sh- scene that should have stayed. Yeah. So because they, it literally goes into, because we see the second half of the scene of her, like, we hear something jostle upstairs and she's like what's that and that's what leads him upstairs we see that part in yeah. the director's cut and that's what leads him upstairs but interestingly enough when they do go upstairs it's kind of casual like they didn't hear something yeah like there's like no concern until they get to the top stairs and Lori sees the place trashed and she's like what the fuck like and she goes up for Andy and then they discover Andy's bloody body in the bathroom and now her her their investigation is intercut with Annie's actual attack. Yeah, Michael trashing the place and going after her. Annie is naked, laid on the bed. The entire bathroom is covered in blood, and mm. she's just like hanging on for dear life. Yeah, she yells to Maya. Maya, call the police. You know, Maya runs downstairs, takes out her cell phone. The only time in in I think any cut of the film where a cell phone is actually used, which helps with the continuity that's supposed to be 1996 well, don't or 1997. Well, we see oh, – or is just a deleted scene? There's a deleted scene when a delivery guy dropping, I guess, dropping a keg of beer off at the strip club. Yeah, but we also see Loomis – oh, yeah, and Loomis on the phone with the Australian uh, reporter that we saw. That's right. And All he right. cancels his, like, his 7 o'clock to go. But it's like a big-ass flip phone. Yeah. You know? I, and I mean, still for – even though we did have, like – even though we did have – not really the the big '90s flip phones in the first Halloween. We still got bigger than what was there at the time, right? And then, but also like one deleted scene <clears> at this point, saying like, "How were we born? 1990?" Yeah. Oh my God! One of Rob Zombie's where he has Uncle. It's it's a scene from earlier when Uncle at, Meat at the coffee and, shop at the coffee shop where Uncle Meat and Maya are arguing about you never heard this blah blah blah, and. He asked Maya when she was born, 1990. So by the film's continuity, that would make you either six or seven years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Understand why this was cut out. Yeah. But, but 
you know, um, it, it, it's true. It's truer for the time, even though it's not the most true. Like in 1997, my stepfather had a, my what my uncle and my stepfather had cell phones because they ran businesses. Yeah. And it was the big flip phone with the, with the, the with the antenna, the antenna you pull out, and it was you couldn't fit it in your pocket. And yeah. If you did, it was fucking sticking out. It looked like you were stealing something. Right. And so Maya calls the police, and she gives the address, but she gets yanked back in the house when she looks at the address out on the porch. Michael unceremoniously just stabs her a few times. Yep, kills her. Lori's screaming, Maya, what's going on? Goes quiet, and then she's just trying to deal with Annie, and she tries to apologize what happens. Annie dies in her arms. Annie dies in her arms. And this time, it affected me. Oh, my God. And the director's cut, it did. The theatrical cut, it didn't. I think think the director's cut worked because of their big blow-up. Okay. I think that's what made that scene more tragic for me. Like, Lori never got a chance to, like, say goodbye or apologize. Yeah. It, it, but, like, maybe it's because I was just a little more tired going to the theatrical cut, and, like, I had seen this one just a few hours previously, so that's why it didn't really bother, it didn't bother me so much. And once again, huge props to Scout Taylor Compton for her reaction, saying, don't leave me, because it's like, deep down, Lori knew this is the only person I really had with me who survived this. Right. This was my rock. And even in, in the earlier psychiatrist scene, the therapist scene, where... You know, she's saying how she needs pills and saying, I'm not strong enough, which is a line from the trailer, which was cut. Mm. This was the only other person she had that was facing this with her. And now she's gone. And yeah. Oh, my God. Scale Tiller come to And she doesn't have a chance breakdown. to mourn because Michael kicks in the door. She gave this great breakdown and Michael kicks in the door and the chase is on. Yeah. At this point, Brackett is alerted. This is a 911 call coming from his house. Yeah. The police rush back there. Lori's, you know, running away from here with him in pursuit. More slow motion. More slow motion. Backlit by one of those giant key lights. And, like, it's like that the light source is questionable, but whatever. The police arrive, but it's just too late. Where is she? Bracket arrives after other cops already have responded to the 911 call, and they tell him, you don't want to go in there, you don't want to go in there. Bracket goes in there. He breaks down. He has a fucking breakdown. and, And, I mean... I love Brad Dorff. He's an awesome actor. Yeah, and love- he does. And I this I believe this moment here from him. Now, for Brazil, I, I don't know. What the fuck? This is – we spoke of in the first one, in the director's cut, after the cemetery scene where Loomis visits the cem- Judith Meyer's grave and there's a dead coyote strung up there. In the director's cut, it immediately cuts to black background, white text that says trick-or-treat, and then cuts to Michael just st- – close-up of him just staring out into space. And then it cuts to at the Meyer's house when Linda and Bob – Back to Van in to the driveway. Yeah. When in the theatrical cut, it goes from dead coyote at the graveyard to fade into Bob and Linda backing in. And we're sitting here puzzled to this. Just, just mind blown. This is the look, get me a doctor moment of the, of the, of Rob Zombie's Halloween. Here in Halloween 2, we have another one of those moments where Brackett's breakdown is intercut with actual home movie footage of Danielle Harris playing with a puppy. And yeah, which I, I, I would. It's so jarring. Yeah. It's like, Consume, prosumer VHS tape. If I had to guess, that was probably made during the time she was making Halloween 4 and 5. Or maybe maybe a little bit before. I don't know. But, but it uh, makes... Th- it, because we saw we saw no baby pictures to indicate this. We have no like reminiscing times. It's just like, you do not trust your actor in that moment. Like, the audience doesn't need to be reminded. We've taken this journey through two movies with, this, with these characters now. We've seen what they've survived through, and the fact that this one didn't in the sequel, you know, it's heartbreaking. You do not trust your audience there, and that's why it's like, it's very <clears throat> jarring, and it's like, ah. It's just, but it's not in the theatrical cut, thank God. Yeah. Um, so, Brackett has this breakdown. Lori's being pursued, you know, through the woods. 
Into she, the woods. Into the woods. She comes to a, a, a just a back road. You know, I don't want to say highway. It does look like a highway. But it's, it's like a two-lane road. road. She just misses a car fly by. Help, help. In the street, another car passes by, you know, to help her. He loads her up in the passenger seat. He's going to take her, you know, I guess to the hospital or whatever. Yeah. And Michael strikes. and Because being a good Samaritan in this movie just gets you killed. Oh, it gets you nowhere. Just leave him and move on. And he gets launched through the windshield. Through the windshield. And then Michael flips the car over off of this road. Braun Strowman style. It's off on a little bit of a hill. So this car tumbles down a bit with this guy still on top, still through the windshield. He's still alive. And and I love it. Like the shot of the stunt of the car going topsy-turvy. The the fake body of the dude does fall out. Oh, God. And And the car lands on it. Land on him like fucking sadly like how Cliff Burton went out. Oh, my God. If that guy did survive it, he's as crippled as Rob Zombie's dialogue writing. Zing! And so we see Michael well, yep. grab Lori from the car. And she's knocked get... out. She's dazed. She's loopy. The car is, is engulfed in flames and eventually blows up as Michael, young Michael, and Ghost Mom walk away n- being badasses by not looking at the explosion. Yep. And Loomis, at this point, he's back in his hotel just feeling awful about the day's events. He watches, you know, the the uh, playback uh, or the, play- the, the broadcast, the broadcast of of his uh, talk show of his of his ill fated talk show appearance, and just shows like, God, you fucked up. It's all over. Like he sees he sees the embarrassment he's become. He's seen all he sees all the bad things that he's become. And frankly, at this point, too little, too late. Yeah, I don't. You're not he, redeeming this character. No, he point. hasn't earned it. This redemptive arc that he's on right now. If you had played him. Where the roles were reversed, where he was being taken advantage of by this greedy publicist, you know, you could you could believe this and how all these bad things have happened because he allowed them to. Right, because you think, like, one of the best ways to create a character arc is that your character believes a lie and saying that, like, and, like, the lie being, like, you think of, um, I've said, I actually said this recently on the last podcast that's going to be dropping soon. Um, you probably already listened to it. Um, where Woody believes he he's the only top dog for Andy's affection. And that leads him in his decision to take out Buzz and everything like that. But his arc is to learn Andy's going to love many toys. He he has to share the wealth. Mm-hmm. Here, like, you could have had, like, the publicist, like, feeding him a lie. Like, no, this is exactly what you need to do. And then realizes the things he wants versus the things he needs, which makes a great character. Like, no, I need to do this. I need to save my image and prove the fact that I'm a good doctor, that could have worked, especially with the moments that's coming up because he his broadcast is interrupted with what's going on later on because Brack is informed that a large man carrying women is, is in the shack and the cops are surrounded. Him. Well, here's the thing, though, too. If we're going to play Loomis this way, I don't disagree with all these distasteful things happen. I just don't think they, that Loomis should have been responsible for them. Right. I think that he should have been, you know, bullshitted into it but still allowed it to happen to show the damage that he allowed to be done. That way, when he tries to redeem it and inevitably spoilers for the ending, self sacrifices, it, 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 it means something and it matters. Yeah. You know, you're not just going to turn the character on a dime like that. No, but anywho, yeah. Um, they receive over the police radio that a witness who saw the car explode, I guess another passing motorist that we mm-hmm. didn't say says he saw a large man carrying, you know, or a, a young girl, yeah, and that <clears throat> the the uh, first responders on the scene say they took him into a large shack, and they ask Brackett if he wants to. You know, Brackett's just like, okay. And they ask him if he want to go, and he says, yeah, let's go. You drive though. So at this point, you know, the now Michael has brought Laurie back to the shack. 
the two of them are the, – the family has been reunited at this point. Yeah. They're both now having the exact same hallucination somehow together. But it's not complete yet. There's that mental connection. With Lori's now being held back by the hallucination of young Michael. Yeah. And Deborah wants her to say, I love you, mommy. Yeah. So finally she begrudgingly does, almost as if – almost like a hostage agreeing to yeah. whatever demands. Like, 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 if this will get me out of this, I will say whatever it takes. Yeah, I love you, mommy. I love you, mommy. But at the same time, you almost kind of feel – and this plays into the ending – that Lori's almost believing it because now she's ju- now like she has lost. She's like everyone. descending into madness at this point. She's descended. She is descended to madness. She is the. She has come to the realization that she is the sister of Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. All her friends and family are dead. Everyone she ever had is dead. This is her family. This is all she has. Right. So it's almost like a weird case of Stockholm syndrome right mm-hmm. now. And As so- she's confessing, "I love you, mommy." We start seeing you know flashing lights, wind, crazy. A police helicopter is – well, it's actually a news reporting helicopter, I think. Yeah. The police have the pl- bracket and the police have the place surrounded. This, mm-hmm. It's standoff time. they got snipers positioned everywhere that cannot get a clean shot. Yep. Way Lo- go away, got shit on this. Yep. Loomis is back in his hotel, you know, just to, just like lamenting everything. And all of a sudden, it cuts to the live breaking news broadcast of what's going on, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, my, believe, believe to see serial killer Michael Myers is now holed up by police in a shack, and he has a hostage – Laurie Strode revealed today in a book release that he is, that she is the sister of Michael Myers, and Loomis Loomis now gets the full gravity of what he's done. Once mm-hmm. again, too little, too late. Yeah, and he goes off. Loomis arrives on the scene. They're at this huge standoff. Like I said, you know, who knows how many hours have passed or how much time has passed? Police have no clear shot. Mm-hmm. Loomis arrives. You know, breaking through the police line, he calls to Brackett, saying, "How can I help?" Brackett comes over and fucking. Punches him in the face. And pulls his gun on him. And he's his gun like, says, there's a, that girl in there. I would have kept her safe if it wasn't for your fucking greedy bull- I want to shoot. In, in Brad Doris' Chucky voice, I want to shoot you. I want to shoot you right here. I, I, I just wanted to say, like the quote from New Jack City, I want to kill you so bad, my dick is hard. But Brad <laughs> comes to his senses. No, he you gets know. pulled off. No, he gets pulled off. Get him out of here. He doesn't want to see him. No, because he's saying, like, Michael's not going to respond and hostage negotiates. And if, say, if you want to show that that um, Loomis has changed, he should be in the yellow trench coat right now. Back to old Loomis? Yeah. I guess he didn't have it with him. No. I mean, like, it, like you could have made that work. And if you want to show his transformation in the easiest way possible to show subtext, it's not having the black trench coat in there. But... He tells him to get out of here. I don't want you here. Loomis is like, all right, fine, 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 I'll leave. He goes but he along. breaks the line and he runs to the shack, hands above like, I'll Sheriff, I owe you one. Yeah, he, damn right he does. And Brackett's pissed off. He and gets in there. And he, he immediately <clears throat> makes eyes with um, Michael and says, all right. She has to come with me now. Yeah. And, and momentarily, now, what I said moments ago was that like, the family is not yet complete because – at one point, I think it was in the director's cut, he says, like, I became, like, the sur- surrogate father to yes. Michael. Michael doesn't finally strike again until Lewis is there. Now, here's the thing, though. You think that he would have if the pol- right then and there if the police didn't show up? I don't know. Because in the director's cut, there was a scene that was left out of the actual. Michael's walking back into town and he sees a billboard for Loomis's book. Yeah. He's unmasked. You know, we get a clear shot of his face with broad I mean, daylight, broad daylight. And, um, Deborah says, you know how he's making money off of our tragedy. Yeah. It's like, we'll let him have his fun for now. Mm-hmm. This isn't in the theatrical cut. And 
I feel you don't need it because Michael never – Michael was clearly on a mission to get Lori. Yeah. And in my opinion, take it or leave it, his whole reuniting was a murder-suicide. I think Loomis being there and him getting to kill Loomis was just, you know, a bonus. Okay. Like like finding a $20 bill on the floor when mm-hmm. you're going to collect your paycheck for the day. Yeah. Like, oh, look, a little something more. Right. Who knows? But anywho, Loomis is pleading with Lori. Lori, get up. I can't. He's holding me. Because we see in her vision that she's being held down by a young version of Michael, but we see what Loomis's point of view that no, she's nothing just scratching around on the ground, nothing stopping her. It's just her own psychosis keeping her in place. Lori, nothing's holding you. You can go, nothing's holding and you. And this is when the sound mix becomes so obnoxious because everything is at an 11. It's building up. Yeah. This is the moment it's building up towards. This is yeah. this is truly the climax of the movie where Deborah looks at adult Mike. Michael looks at his mother, adult Michael, the vision, and she says, now take us home. Now, this is where... This is where we diverge into two very different endings. And yes. I mean ending of the movie endings. Yeah. This is where I turn off the director's cut. <laughs> Loomis goes... Uh, D- Michael goes after Loomis. And spears him. And it, Well, it cuts through. It cuts back to outside the shack. And the two of them break through the, the wall of the shack. Yeah. Michael holds Loomis up. Loomis tries to reason with him. Michael rips off his mask. Yeah. And finally, for the first time ever, Michael Myers, adult Michael Myers, the shape speaks. Die! You, you know what he says, folks? Die! As he stares loose once. He just tells him to die. Yeah. Of all the words Michael Myers could have said, even in the even in what Rob Zombie almost did in the first one by having him say boo, I liked better than die! <laughs> Zach Wilde then looks at the camera. You know, looks Still up at the police helicopter. Looks up at the police helicopter. Like, this isn't someone who's a blank expressionless, emotionless. No. This is someone who's alert and conscious conscious of his surroundings. He's like, oh! And the police then proceed to gun him the fuck down. Yeah. Lori's then freed from her visions when, when you know, uh, Michael's gunned down. She mm. comes out very calmly, coolly, collectedly. Goes, up. Up, goes over to Michael. The police are looking at her because she's now caked in blood and just zoned out. And Brack is approaching her. She picks up Michael's knife, walks over to Loomis... And a cop that's just a little, I guess, jostled by the night's events. It's still too trigger happy, like like the, like the uh, the old father, the archer in Helm's Deep and Lord of the Rings. You knew where I was going. with Yeah, this. I, as, as soon as you pulled the arm back, you signified a uh, bow. He lets he lets His nerves let the arrow go, and the one kills that one Urukai. Yeah, which starts the battle, and the one cop pulls the trigger and kills Lori. But she gets shot several times. She does. Yeah. Oh. Because well, she, I think she get, I think somebody shoots once, and I think a few people. And some other people think, "Oh shit, it's time to shoot." And then like, all just, like, "No, hold fire." They're all and, just fried by this. And, and like, then hold your fire. And we have like the staccato still imagery of like of Lori dying as, as we see the breath leave her lungs. And there's this overhead shot showing the bodies of Michael, Loomis, and Lori. They're all gone. And it, 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 the crane down pushes to a close-up as Nan Vernon's cover of Love Hurts begins. Nan Vernon, who came, who did a cover of Mr. Sandman. Mm-hmm. For Rob Zombie's Halloween one, they come back and do a cover of Nazareth Love Hurts, which was featured in Halloween one. Yeah, context I don't know, but as it spirals into directly into Lori's face, it fades into a vision of a long white hallway. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar right now, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of that hallway, there's a young female figure sitting at a bed, head at the edge of a bed, head down, shoulders slumped. As it zooms in on her, on this person, it's Lori. Lori looks up. 
with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. And across the hall, she sees her mother and a white horse, the ghost of her mother and a white horse walking towards her. As a smile creeps up on one side of her face, it cuts back to the, the vision. It cuts back to her. The smile creeps up on the other side of her face and just stares at the camera until it fades out. Yeah. Until it cuts the credits. That was the director's cut. Yeah. I think die is the dumbest fucking thing. Die! If my if you're ever gonna have Michael it, Myers speak like okay, I, I, I thought okay, what's the out of these three options? What's the worst line delivery in the entire series? Just get me a doctor, trick or treat, motherfucker, or die. What's the worst of those three? I'm gonna say get me a doctor now because the thing is, I I. Routine. Actually, just last weekend, I had I had the urge to marathon the Halloween series. I only huh. got up to six before. I only had enough time. By the time I wanted to do it, it was too late to watch all seven. Mm-hmm. Yes, all seven, not all eight. Yes. <clears throat> so I got to watch up to six. Six I will watch through because there was enough I could find in it to like it. Resurrection, I don't watch because fuck it. Yeah. And if I'm going to watch H2, I'm going to watch the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. To answer your question later on, the theatrical cut is my preferred version. Mm-hmm. We'll speak more of it when we get to that. But to go back, <clears throat> the theatrical cuts ending after Deborah says, home. No, take us home. Michael grabs Loomis, slashes him a couple times, notices he's still alive, and just overstabs the fuck out of him. Like turning his face into a jack Turns him into fucking hamburger. Yeah. At this point, Michael's moved away from where he was, and now a sniper has a clear shot of him. Sniper shoots him, and Michael falls backwards on top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> falls backwards onto like these metal protruding hooks, wires, spikes that are just yeah. sticking out of the wall. Falls it and is impaled in several places. Yeah. At which point, Lori is freed from her hallucination. Right, and she goes up and she says, "This is really confusing." She says, "I love you, brother." She goes over to Michael, starts petting. He looks up at her, and, and kudos to Tyler Maine for you know facial expression with only one small part of his face. Right. Where he looks at her. Starts petting his face. Like he has this almost like he has this like Rocky half knocked out being consoled by Adrian. Yeah. Look. Starts petting his face and saying, I love you, brother while crying, I love you, brother. He goes to lift up his knife. Has no strength drops. Has no strength drops. Because I think in his mind still he wants to complete his mission to reunite the family in death. Yeah. He knows he's gonna die here. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have the strength. I feel Laurie is saying this because Laurie has now been fully consumed by the same mental illness that consumed Michael. Which I find, which I find weird <clears throat> because the next beat is her just like violently and angrily killing Michael. That's the question I. She's I, I, reuniting him with his mother like he wanted almost. It's I, almost as if she understands. I just don't know if it was at that point. I'm like, is she just playing possum at this point with Michael in order for him to not kill her? I don't think so because he didn't start raising his arm until after she started petting him. Mm. If you watch. I think Lori fully succumbed to this. Right. And that's why I feel like the I love you mommy thing earlier was her kind of falling into that Stockholm syndrome where yeah. this is what I am. I've accepted my fate. Mm-hmm. Now let me complete my brother's mission because he can't. Yeah. And so she stabs him several times. Stabs him not, several times. And we cut back to the outside of the shack. Where everyone is all of a sudden just, just looking shocked. Jaws dropped, wide-eyed. Uh, uh, because uh, this is a creepy image. A very petite figure. Wearing the shape mask walks out. It's Lori. She's wearing Michael's mask. She yeah. comes out. You know, Brackett tries to get closer. She drops to her knees, takes, takes the mask off, looking at it with this Bemused. blank yet shocked expression. 
looks at the mask, and it fades into a different variation of that ending hallway scene. Yeah. Where it's now like a more contained, just long room. Right, and it's playing Laurie's theme. It's now playing a slower version of Laurie's theme from from the original Halloween. The do 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 do. Slowly zooming in on her in the same position. She looks up, blank, pale, emotionless face, half smile, sees her mother in the white horse, full smile, and just stares at the camera, and it gives me fucking chills. It's so unnerving. Yeah. It's like she's staring at, into your fuck. It's like she's staring at you with this fucked up smile. Mm. And with, with the, the theme, Lori's theme playing, it just... It is so fucking unnerving. We were just sitting there watching it. it was, you're like, you, your house is not very well lit right now. And it's no, just, it's... it's just kind of giving me the fucking willies just yeah. thinking about it. And then the movie ends, you know, cut to credits. And what and from what Rob Zombie has said, the director's cut ending, cutting to that long hallway where she shared Michael's dream from that was talked about in the flashback to his time in the sanitarium, is that this is the final thought going through Lori's mind as she dies. Mm. Everyone's dead. Lori's dead. In this, though, it continues what I was just talking about, where Lori has fully succumbed to this mental illness in her family, and Lori has become the shape. Yeah. She became Michael. Similar to Jamie Lloyd at the end of Halloween 4, she has become the shape. She is no longer herself. She has become the shape, and now she sees everything that her brother did. And Lori is, you know, it, it's an ending. That's the one credit I could give to Rob Zombie is that his two Halloween films had a definitive ending. A sad ending. But an ending nonetheless. As I said to you earlier, I will take a sad ending over a cliffhanger. If you end it with shit unresolved, I cannot get my fucking brain around it. I want If I'm this invested in a story. Don't see the new Jurassic World. And for better or worse, when it comes to the Halloween series with its up or downs, I still, I still be, I accept it for its ups and downs. For it, for it, all your perfect imperfection, <laughs> I still love it. And H two O had that definitive end, where after all the horrors that Michael has inflicted on so many people, his reign of terror is finally put to an end. Twenty years after after he his return from incarceration, mm. and with this, it's another ending too, where Michael has been killed, but he has his evil has been passed on through this mental illness into his poor sister mm. who has now become him and forever doomed to who knows spend her time in a sanitarium or or who knows what what will happen to her right she no longer has a family to reunite she, fuck she could hang herself in her cell with a bed sheet and that could be the fucking epilogue to this but it's that <clears throat> it's that unclear yet definitive this is the end and that stuck with me. That's why I give this movie one of the reasons I give this movie its respect. And during the ending credits, we get the beginning of the ending credits. The Halloween Tyler Bates version of the Halloween theme played. Not professional wrestler Tyler Bate. Tyler Bates, the composer, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> is playing his version of the Halloween. They're very dissonant with a lot of effects going on. The background version of the Halloween theme. And after every couple of names that pop up, there's like a intercut with crime scene photos. Throughout the first Halloween of each of Michael's kills. Yeah. The bully, Judith. Um, Ronnie. Ronnie. Um, Joe Grizzly. Joe Grizzly, all of them. And it ends with a crime scene photograph of Michael fr just before from H2 without his mask on. Mm -hmm. He's dead. Yeah. It's definitive he's dead. 
Yeah, and so ends Rob Zombie's, uh, what is it, du- duology? Yeah, is it? duology. Duology, if and that's so, the word. And I know they wanted to make a third one. It was going to be in 3D. There were yeah, the, the, the Weinsteins and, Mir- and Miramax Dimension and Trankus wanted to continue it. They, were, they could always find some way to bring Michael back, which worries me about the new one because it's supposed to be the last one. But we'll, uh, With how we'll the see. buzz is going, it's not going to be the last one. If it makes money, there'll be another one, and that's that's disappointing to me. Because he, because it, it, this, this is to be the possibility this could be J.B. Lee Curtis's last one, and it would be nice for it just to become full circle like I just how ho- H2O was. I just hope she read the fucking contract this time. <laughs> I hope so, too. But, yeah, that's the one thing Rob Zombie can say is that he was able to give Halloween an ending the way the folks at Trank has failed and truthfully didn't have to fail. Yeah. It didn't have to fail. No. After H2O, that's when they probably should have remade it. We're we'll just wait nine years. We just had to wait nine years now. It's not unheard of. True. Halloween Resurrection did not need to exist. And I'm sorry to, even though we did say the handful of nice things about the production and, you know, the cast get, doing the best with what they got. They tried to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. They tried, they, they made, they tried to make better chicken salad out of chicken salad, but instead they made the most disgusting chicken shit. <laughs> the shittiest chicken <laughs> shit that's ever been shit. That's a lot of shit. That's a lot of shit. So, do you prefer H2 more than his first Halloween? I can't decide. And I will tell you here that I couldn't decide before. And after watching this, I gained a new appreciation for this movie. Mm-hmm. But I still kind of can't decide because there's still enough There's still enough that just makes me roll my fucking eyes and drives me nuts. I can see where people would be confused about all these subplots. I, I guess it's just my overactive imagination that makes me connect these things together. I mean, you spent years trying to make the Cor- Thorn trilogy tie in with H2O. It was so. H2O, and it didn't fucking... I spent 20 years doing that, and it didn't fucking work. But yeah. I can't decide, but the thing is, I have I have a huge appreciation for what was attempted in this film. And even if that's not the intention, what it meant to me yeah. made me appreciate this. And I know... Sitting here with you today, you do as well. You can agree. Yes, because of my life experiences after the last times I've watched it. So, yes, I mean, I do miss the iconography of the first one, mm-hmm. especially the back half of his Halloween. So it's like a updated version of Halloween. So seeing Haddonfield and seeing it's also shot in South Pass, there is that heartwarmingness. Exactly. And, and seeing the actual locations from the first one be used in different areas. Yes. Be repurposed. But then this being its own unique take, like, okay, I said this to you earlier, and I think this is a way of being applicable here because if, like, Rob's only being given carte blanche to do what he wants, it's like Batman and Batman Returns, how people really dug that version of Batman 89 when it came to Batman Returns. There's a lot more mixed reception, and Tim Burton was given free reign to do what he wants to make him. He decided to have Batman in it. But there was a backlash to that free reign. Exactly. Even though I bought all four of the fucking McDonald's toys that they threatened to pull. Mm-hmm. I have, I think I still have those in my basement somewhere. All you, four of my Happy Meal toys from Batman. You realize Returns. we have to go through all your toys and catalog, catalog them. You know, yeah. Way. And then if I ever need money, I got to sell them, unfortunately. Yes. But, yeah, and so that's how I Probably think of it. do it anyway. I got too much stuff. Um... I do have new appreciation. I think I will go back to this more often. I have all my toys that aren't broken. That's when great. my mother got married and we moved out. She went through everything, got rid of what was broken. There was a lot of 
good rare stuff I had that was unfortunately broken because I played with my toys as a child. I didn't just buy this and say, okay, this is going to sit in a box for 30 years and people, it'll, it'll acquire value that I'm never going to pursue. Cause it's There's a, only one toy I did that I never did, but... I had one of those, that late 80s DC line Superman toys, mm. which was like the, the coolest Superman toy ever. Mine was it a... It came with the kryptonite ring that had the... Uh, the uh, opposite magnet in it like they put a fucking po- i guess a positive magnet in the superman character and a negative and uh another positive or whatever it was in the kryptonite ring and when you put it near the superman character it, it, knocked, away. it pushed him over like yeah. he, this is his weakness um the only toy like it was a taco bell toy it was for the re-releases of star wars it was this cube that one side had i have that darth vader's head and the other side had uh, yoda's head i still have that too yeah my my uh, Death Star gyro, uh, what was it gyroscope whatever thing when yeah. you when you yeah it was the Death Star exploding it's it's like this complete shell and inside is like this sparkly light up core you put the like the plastic pull string in and when you pull it back it like winds back and the thing spins and the outer shell goes outward and the sparks start flying to to simulate the Death Star blowing up the the shell pieces have fallen off so many times one time I did it and it was spinning so fast one of the pieces flew across the fucking room oh shit. But, all right, let's give our final thoughts on Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. Well, <clears throat> we do have... My voice is starting to go. That's why I'm saying, like, oh, God. We do have two cuts of this film. I w- this is one of those where I want to prefer the director's cut, but just like the fucking rape scene in the first one, the ending fucking kills the director's cut for me. The, yeah. The ending with the die and the whole she died. Yeah. Rather than she became, you know, the, has to live the rest of her life as a monster. I actually even feel they shouldn't have killed Loomis at the end. I kind of feel Loomis's character, the, the one thing we could always say about Loomis's character is that he is the character that has to survive these events and almost like pass down a, and live with this weight on his shoulders. Mm. That he like has to, he's the one that has to bear the, the weight of being the, always being the survivor. Right. And pass it down. I feel like. And I feel like you could have done it in the theatrical cut. You could add it where after that first couple of slashes where Loomis is injured and still alive. Just left him. No, that's when the sniper could have taken the shot. Gotcha. And Loomis, when he sees Laurie stab Michael, he could have they cook up back to him and just like Loomis in part in part four. No, no. Where Loomis realizes that Laurie is becoming the shape. But wouldn't Laurie just kill him at that point? She might have been so fucking zoned out she wouldn't have even noticed his ass mm-hmm. there. You could have awesome. done something. Or, or Loomis at the end, you know. Crawling out of the shack as Laurie's looking at the mask, mm-hmm. crawling with every last bit he's got, crying at what's transpired, you know, reaching out to her, crying and then putting his hands in his face, realizing, oh, my God, what what have I allowed to happen? Right. And Loomis would have to live the rest of his life bearing this weight. Laurie would live the rest of her life incarcerated as now mentally her brother's doppelganger. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like Captain Bringdown, but these are powerful things that yeah. affect you, you know, when you mm-hmm. watch them. It, it, it's interesting. I mean, like, I, I do appreciate these. I at least appreciate this one more. I understand why it gets all like gets all the hate. I get that. I really do. And at the same time, too, there's a lot of hate that's undeserved. It's not like a regular Halloween. All right, go fuck yourself, mister. You have plenty of other movies in the series to do that. I know. You've got you've got fucking tons of If you want a carbon copy, you're not going to be satisfied anyway, so shut the fuck up. If you want a carbon copy up. of a Halloween movie, just watch Halloween 4. Yeah. And you're still not going to be satisfied. No, so it and, and, I, and I, I, I love 4, but I can... I can, I can be Say that it is very much beat for beat sequel. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, like I appreciate this more. I am looking forward to what the 40th anniversary is going to give us. I have to prefer the theatrical cut to answer the question before. Yeah, because the the sympathetic bits of Laurie that are left out in the director's cut, I feel 
off the balance a little. Yeah. And the ending is better. Right. And the, there are a couple trimmings here and there of su- stupid Rob Zombie bullshit, like the strip club thing. I think yeah. there's one other. But also, I, I, I love that I missed the fight that Annie and Lori have yes. in the director's cut. The, 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 that makes it so heartbreaking when Annie does die. The other end of the fucking spe- of the spectrum with Lori, the fucking the, the craziness that comes out is sorely missed in the theatrical. This is, it, yet, just like Halloween 1, Rob Zombie's Halloween, I am the feeling of if you take the two cuts and you splice them together... You, you could have something that's actually a lot better than either one on their own. Mm. Fortunately, this time, I think that's possible because you have only two versions instead of a work print. Yeah. I'm not aware of a work print version that exists. So you have two high-quality copies. You know, you could re- – maybe we'll do a fan edit. Mm. But if we distribute it, we'll get sued. So Yeah. Just for us. We'll do the Cartman you can't, you can't come approach. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Theatrical or directors? Directors. Really? Even, Even with – Die! Yeah. I, I, at that point, I, I can, I can look past that. Okay, because I, I more Margot Kidder is better for me, even with that that scene where Lori gets so angry at Andy so early on. I, I like that second therapy session. That that really gets me. Oh my god, this is like three things we've disagreed on, and we're on the internet. Like, how can we go on from this? I don't know. I think we have, I think we have to fight uh, to death. I think that's what the rules of the we'll internet broadcast it on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's why I prefer director's cut. I mean, like even with the nonsense of it, but like, I'll go back and watch this again. Well, for those of you out there that want to watch these, obviously, you know, we're at the point now where you got plenty of digital copies of all this shit, but for physical media, um, I own actually three separate discs of Halloween too. Yeah. Because yeah, I want guy. the complete experience. Originally when it came out on DVD, like... Halloween 1, there was a theatrical and director's cut released. However, the theatrical cut was far less available. I mean, far less. I did not even see it in stores most of the time. Yeah. Whereas Halloween 1, you could find both of them in the, on the same shelf, you know, next to each other. This one, I had to go online to order the theatrical cut. Right. So I have both. And what I did in order to take up less uh, space on my DVD rack, where is it? Back in the day, when digital copies were first becoming a thing, a lot of movies, they would come with a second disc. You'd have yeah. a single, you know, single-sized DVD case with the little, uh, what is this, like page, disc page? Yeah. Where you have so, a disc here, you flip it, and then there's another disc behind it. And one of those discs would contain a digital copy that you, you know, type in a password. It's password protected. You type in a code. Yeah. And you essentially download it off this disc. And mm. the, the download is only good for a certain period of time, like a year, two years. Mm -hmm. So I had a few movies like that where the codes had expired. So I just took the fucking digital copy disc, threw it out since I already redeemed it. It was no good anymore. And what I did was I took my theatrical edition and my uh, director's condition and put them both in the same case. Yeah. And then I took the slip cover of the theatrical and I put it over top the uh, director. So I had them both in the same case, both slip covers and both discs. I put the theatrical edition one out as the display one because that's the version I prefer. Yeah. So that's kind of how I did that. For Blu-ray, <clears throat> your options are a lot more limited out there, folks. Yep. In At least in North America, the only known copy, to my knowledge, of the theatrical version is on the Alliance Entertainment Blu-ray double pack released only in Canada. I spoke of this in the previous episode when I we added our little outro and I was talking about how to watch... Halloween 1's theatrical cut on disc. Yeah. Um, it comes with no special features. 
And it's clearly Canadian because there's the only other language track is in French. Yes. And even on the menu, right below the English is like uh, play film and below is le film. Yeah. So there's that. However, the standalone release as well as the um, 15 and 10 disc box set releases only contains the the, only the director's cut. Right. I think though, I think that set should have because should have contained the fucking theatrical cuts of I mean, both. We have TV cuts of these movies in there, might as well. We have t- we have both releases of the original Halloween, yeah. the 2007 and the 2014 release. Yeah, you have the same fucking movie with no differences between the we two. Have the except producers the visual cut in there. We have the producers cut and theatrical cut. We have the TV cut and the theatrical cut of fucking Halloween too. They could have done this. Yeah. They could have done this. They should have. That's one knock against the box sets. But the nice thing though is that this double pack is it's pretty cheap. You could get it for a decent price like mm. under 20 bucks. And even if you want the Blu-ray, you know, it comes with a handful of special features. The deleted scenes, if you and alternate scenes, if you feel like a good laugh, watch them. If you're easily angered, don't watch them because it's a half an hour in length. There's audition footage, makeup test footage, which I haven't watched blooper reels uh there's music videos by the fake band captain clegg and the night creatures the psycho billy band apparently uncle seymour coffins the mc of the halloween party at the end of the movie who was only in the director's cut version i believe correct no he's in both he's in both yeah that's correct yes he's cut down into the actual cut he's he's trimmed down with his misogyny his entire stand-up routine is on there why the fuck you'd want to watch that but there's also Rob Zombie's commentary where you can listen to a person, a man not interested. So not at all. If you want to enjoy it, that's how you do. All right. So I hope everybody's enjoyed this extremely long episode. Well, this uh, is this is something now because as of if we were to have done this last year, we would have completed the entire series. Yeah, we'd be done. There's only one more of these to go via a movie. And right. after that, we have our uh, Halloween extras planned. Yep. Which, fortunately, thanks to uh, recent declines in Amazon prices, I have many more things for you to review for you folks. Yeah. So which will probably look- put you off by the by their prices, but right. you get a good feeling for things anyway. Yeah, but so you can experience it vicariously through us from yep. this program. So yeah. Which reminds me, of, fuck, I gotta get. There's another thing that Halloween related that just went on sale that I think I decided I'm going to mm-hmm. get. All right. So, Mike, I want to say thank you for taking time out of your night to do all this with me about all Halloween, too. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah. Sorry we were such Captain Bringdowns, but you know what? Hey, you know what? Maybe you guys will appreciate this. I, I hope you do. Yeah. I hope that you'll look at this movie in a new light. I did. I uh, and you, and I was and I was Mr. Negative going into this. You knew that. I did look at this in a new light. It just reminded me why I looked at it the way I did. Yeah. But... If you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my other podcast, Please Rewind, which you can find at rfforum.com. We talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries. Latest episodes actually attribute to uh, Burt Reynolds. And my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, my latest video is uh, Back to the Bat, is a review of Batman Ego by Darwin Cook and my experiences for Batman Day. I hope everybody's enjoyed our look back at Rob Zombie's H2. Come back next time as we do about talking about geek and pop culture. Well, the, the, our next uh, One Good Scare, it is finally here. Halloween 2018, folks. This will be coming after October 19th. Yeah. We'll try and get it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. But, fuck, man, the next review is going to be for something brand new. It's exciting. Exactly. We'll all be feeling the same things at the same time, and we'll be expressing it together. Yep. All right. Breaking bread has God intended. Exactly. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day, everybody. Peace.